fasten your seatbelt. I'm taking you for the ride of your life. I'm going to show you what this car can really do. Are you ready? I am ready. Hang on. Okay. Here we go. Hold on to your butts. Go get him, kid. It might be a tumor. It's not a tumor. Not a tumor at all. As if. You're going to ask me. So you can go ahead and ask me what you're going to ask me. And my natural response could be to get offended. Hey, want to hear the most annoying sound in the world? Yeah, well, you know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. All right, all right, all right. You're listening to the 30-something movie podcast. One movie each week, 30 years in the making. Star Trek 2, The Wrath of Khan. It's a 30-something movie podcast. Let's just let this breathe for just a second. All right. Well, our episode this time around, it's the 40th anniversary of Star Trek 2, The Wrath of Khan. What I have often deemed one of the greatest submarine movies in space if not the greatest submarine movie in space that's ever existed and i'm just going to set this out here right now i I don't know that any of us are going to differ in that opinion but we will not debate my profound wisdom at these proceedings so john i make it a point never to debate your profound wisdom in any proceedings but most assuredly not in that proceeding that would be wise it's an amazing soundtrack like i almost think we're doing the audience a disservice if we just don't like let the soundtrack play for the next hour and then talk yeah. about it. Yeah. Well, we're, we're going to play some of the music as, as we're talking. We'll, oh, we'll get yeah, into the course. soundtrack a little bit more later. But anybody who's listened to this show knows my profound love for James Horner and all of his music. Oh. So just the fact that we've mixed James Horner and, and Star Trek in everything else about this movie, just it makes me so... The, the nerdy heart is, is so happy. No. Right. Well, it's it's I don't I think it's one of his masterpieces. I I think oh, it's amazing absolutely. music. Absolutely. All right. Well, in this episode, so this is a very very special episode. It like I said, it's the 40th anniversary, so this is not one of our 92 movies. We've jumped back to 82 for this one, but it is such an awesome movie and we did not have a chance to to cover it because we weren't doing this podcast for 1982. So, since we started in 84 85, we missed this one. And definitely wanted to have a chance to do this. So actually, we've got one of our guests on with us tonight is Rob Perry. He's one of our Patreon co-executive producers. And Rob had reached out to me, How? what was that? Was it maybe almost even a year ago? One of the, Maybe close to one of the last times you were on. Might have been last October. And you, you said, hey, if you're thinking of doing a Star Trek II 40th anniversary, let me know. And I'm like... I've always been thinking of doing, like, I, we could do the 39th anniversary, we could do the 41st anniversary. I've, this could be an annual thing if you want. I'll, I'll talk about this movie every year. But So, Rob, thank you for being on the show with us. It's a pleasure to be here and to talk about this movie, which is one of my all-time favorites of, of any 
genre. It, it's just a movie that's near and dear to my heart. It's it's got a lot of emotional connection with my dad, and it's just, it's just it's it's a movie that's been with me my entire life. So thank you for having me aboard. Absolutely, absolutely. And you've already heard from Pat. Pat, how are you doing? Great, John. I like echo everything Rob said. This is a fantastic movie. I can't wait to get into all the all the nooks and crannies that are in there. And, and Rob, just so wonderful to have you as a guest. And my gosh, thank you so much for all your support and, and great. It's this whole doing this podcast thing. One of the best parts is just meeting, meeting people that have watched all the same movies that, that, that I did growing up and we get to talk about them. And so it's, it's great to reconnect with you and it's going to be awesome hearing all your insights. So thank you so, so, so much for, for joining us. And Bo, I, I would like to think that at some point in time I was a Star Trek fan, but I've never had a living space of mine adorned with commemorative plates across the wall. So I don't know that I live and up to And action figures. And if you're I'm, going to mock me, I, do it right, sir. I'm, I'm not mocking you. I'm, I'm giving props to you for having more Star Trek memorabilia than I do. Oh, yeah, I do miss those days. Yeah. Wish I had that much display space in my, my current abode. Yeah. Instead, all that stuff gathers dust. Right. But we're here to talk Rafficon. I'm super excited. I saw it when it came out in the theaters again for the 35th anniversary. Yeah. I am debating going to see it again in the theater. I'm not sure I'm going to do it, but I'm debating it. I haven't even looked to see when yet, which is bad, but hey, what are you going to do? But yeah, this is an awesome movie with an awesome soundtrack, and I, I, I would be remiss if I didn't say thank you, Nicholas Meyer, for saving Star Trek. Because without this movie, I have no idea where we would be today with Star Trek. I really don't. The more I think about where it was when this movie came out, the more I, the more I wonder what would have happened. I have no idea. It would be relegated to Nick at Night, probably. And let's be honest, there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> there's but... nothing wrong with that, but right. <laughs> this, this, this helped solve some issues that catapulted it forward. So, Bo, let me do point out real quick, though, you're debating going to see it in the theater. May I remind you that the needs of the few or the one outweigh the needs of the many. So whatever you got going on, I, I say go. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm very stingy with my movie theater dollar, as I think I've said before. Okay, yeah. And and to go see something I've already seen is, is something I have to debate a little. That's true. It was it was a lot easier when you and I were in high school and we went to go see the Star Wars special editions multiple times in the theater. Well, because was... I, I think we went to see them, A, to mock them, yes. and B, at the cheap theater, which doesn't exist anymore. It was the, so, it, it was the $1.50 know. theater, so yeah, we did. Yes. We and did that was it. amazing, yeah. and, you know, at the time, I, I dare say we might have even snuck into one or two of those screenings, but, you know. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, you know. Hey, for for a dollar fifty to create your own mystery science theater, yeah, I'll I'll pay that. I'd pay that. I'd buy that for a dollar fifty. Well, what the sad thing is, is that we didn't record those. Well, right. Because those could be lost episodes of this podcast yeah. if we had only had the forethought. I know. Had we known at the time. I know. I know. Yeah. 20 you know years ago. You know, it's funny. You guys bring this up. I'm, I'm, I'm just kind of processing when this movie came out in Star Trek. Dumb. Like in, in that, 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 that world. And I'm kind of thinking of the star relating to star Wars. I, my kids and I were, were doing a whole complete watch through chronologically where we, 
We just are getting into Kenobi with the kids now. And it's funny because I was talking to them and I said, guys, back in the day, we had three movies. That was it. All this other. We only had three television channels. And if the president was on, you were host. Exactly. But the thing is, is that it's funny when you go back and watch early Star Wars and realize, oh, my gosh, this came out before all this other world was created. And, you know, I, 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 I'm going to make the same comment here. We go back to Wrath of Khan, which I've said before, is like my favorite Star Trek thing ever. But this is like, Bo, like you bring up a great point. Like it was basically the original series, one shot at a movie. And that was it. Well, and the animated, yeah, obviously the animated, the animated series, which I am making my way through now for the first time. Right. I've only spotty watched them here and there. Okay. It's a lot of fun and a lot of weird. Yep. <laughs> yeah, animation in the seventies. Right. But I mean, totally. it's, it's in, but it's, but what's interesting about this is it's like, you look at this world and it's like, wow, this world was, well, I mean, before Next Generation, before Deep Space Nine, before Voyager, and now we're in this golden era of Star Trek shows that just are expanding that world even more, going in both directions, right? And it's like, wow, this Wrath of Khan, for me, still holds up as one of the great Star Trek things of all time. But it was it came out before this whole world of Star Trek really expanded like it has within the last... Well, I don't know, 5, 10, 20, 20 years. So 5, 10, 20, 30 years. So anyways, I, I, I don't know what my point is other than it's very exciting just how much this movie holds up, especially because it was so early on from as Star Trek was, was being built and created and so forth. Yeah, when you when we were youngins, you, you whippersnappers now don't get it. And we were youngins. We had V'ger both ways, up and downhill, in the snow, barefoot and we liked it <laughs> there's there's a lot lot to unpack there john there's so, a lot to unpack there. speaking of a lot to unpack pat as you were talking and specifically mentioning new star trek rob had a look on his face i think rob might have some opinions on new star trek and i'm curious well um. I, there's no toes to be stepped on here i mean i've offended probably just about everybody in our listening audience so my gosh please don't pat, pat has yeah. no pat has no ego to bruise so go ahead i i i missed it that was the easy drop you proceed from a false assumption i have no ego to bruise okay well, I, I I try to keep an open mind. I really did enjoy the the first JJ Abrams Star Trek. Rewatching The Wrath of Khan makes me hate Into Darkness so much more every time I watch oh, The I Wrath tell, of Khan. I totally agree with you. Yes. And Indeed. and Star Star Trek Beyond was fun, but it wasn't Star Trek that that I could relate to. I mean, they they had actually started getting the relationships with all the main crew members working by that time. But who knows if we'll never ever, if we'll ever see another one of those, but then it comes to the TV series and the first season of Picard made me so angry. I was screaming at my TV set because it did not feel like Star Trek when admirals and Starfleet are suddenly super fascist and dropping the F bomb in Picard's face. I'm just like, no, this is a thing. We evolved past talking like we're in a bar on a Friday night and have been overserved. We don't talk to each other like this anymore. And and so it, I, I 
it took me three times to finally get through the first season of Picard. The second season, I enjoyed it much better. It was mm-hmm. less violent. It was less less dark. And and I've actually really enjoyed Strange New Worlds for the most part. I have I haven't given Discovery that much of a shake because all my more heavy older Star Trek fans are just like. Uh, and I, I keep hearing the the silly term woke Trek. And I, and I, I say to anybody who says that Star Trek has always been woke. It has yeah. always been inclusive. It's always been open-minded. So that's not right. going to bother me too much. It's, it's just, I like going back to the original series. I like going back to the Wrath of Khan and, and the, the six original Trek movies. The, the first, well, the, the last Several seasons of TNG, if you skip over one and most of two, are really good Star Trek. And Deep Space Nine, it was when that came out, I was I was already in college and had it kind of straight away. So I need to definitely need to go back and revisit that and give that more of a time of day. Because my dad, who was a, a huge TOS fan, loved Deep Space Nine. So but but so I, and one of my older older friends has told me, don't look at newer Star Trek as not being Star Trek because it because it is Star Trek. And maybe it will introduce people, even if it's not Star Trek that you enjoy, maybe it will introduce a younger generation to go back and look at what we hold so near and dear. So I try not to dismiss it or talk talk bad about it too much. So we did my daughter has watched she and I watched Star Trek Prodigy, the new anim, the animated show that came out. Last year, and she really enjoyed that. And then she has been watching, or at least she watched, I don't know if she watched the first episode with us, but then she started to watch Strange New Worlds with us too, which was then funny because my mother-in-law, who's a huge original series fan, for her birthday just a couple of weeks ago, we gave her kind of a Star Trek-themed birthday. You know, we, we dyed 7-Up Blue for Romulan Ale. We had we had pasta that was, you know, colored to look like gach. And uh, although not fresh, she, she didn't think she could handle fresh, so we made sure it was store-bought gach. And what was funny is, and then we said, you can pick anything Star Trek you want to watch. Like, once we finish with dinner, we'll open presents, all this. And then whatever you want to watch, you can pick whatever you want to watch. And she picked Arena. She picked the episode with the Gorn. And then, of course, like, the only connection that my daughter has is she's like, oh, I remember, wasn't that that episode where the, in the Strange New Worlds, where, like, the little alien things were popping out of people? And I'm like, yep, same one. She's like, this one doesn't look quite the same. Like, yeah, no. No, that'll be the difference between the... <laughs> right, And that was afterwards my son was kind of laughing about it. He's like, did they mean to do the fights in slow motion? And I'm like, well, it wasn't really in slow motion. That's just... That is how the fight was done. So just roll with it and enjoy it for either being campy classic TV or I don't know, however you want to enjoy was it. Was Arena the first... I can't remember what where it aired in the Pantheon... Was Arena the first use of the Star Trek punch? So Arena's crazy. I know we're getting a little bit off yeah. the Wrath of Khan here, but I, I, that one, I'll, I'll talk about that one for a second. That's crazy because when we were watching that one, I was looking up as it was halfway through the fight scene. It was like, I don't know, minute eight of one of the fight scenes. So I started to look up trivia on IMDb because I knew one of the punches was going to take another 40 seconds. And so as I was looking up this trivia, I found Arena... It might be the first use of the Star Trek punch. Is it the two-handed Star Trek punch? Is that what you're thinking of? Yeah. It's also like crazy trivia for that one. It's the first time photon torpedoes are mentioned. It's the first time, I believe, Starfleet is even mentioned. Huh. 
there's a there's a ton of firsts in that episode. Like it established the idea that you could not beam through shields was established mm. in that episode. And just tons of stuff that we take for granted now and we're like, oh yeah, that's totally Star Trek is was established in that episode. And it was like I wanna say it was the fourteenth episode of the first season. I knew it was early. I just can't remember if it was early enough to yeah. actually be the first Star Trek punch, but I thought maybe. It's about, I want to say it's about halfway through that first season, maybe a little less than halfway, but it's, yeah, if you look up the trivia on Arena, That's it, outstanding. it introduces some crazy, like a crazy amount of what becomes part of the Star Trek lore. That's awesome. Yeah. Some great music, too. Oh, yeah. Well, and fun that the the planet that they go to at first that is kind of devastated was originally a set for a movie about the Alamo. <laughs> and it, it looks Remember like the it, Alamo. It looks like it, too. I'm like, that looks like the Alamo. I remember the Alamo. Speaking of somebody who might remember the Alamo, because he might have been there, Dennis, how's it going? It is going good. How are you guys doing? Good. Sorry, I enjoyed it late. Cross country meet today, so... Yeah, that's fine. I'm glad we got you here. Well, why don't do we want to? I, I figure we're going to talk a while about this one. So, do we want to get on into Star Trek II: Wrath of Khan? Even though we've kind of already started, we can go ahead and jump in. All right. Just means more editing fun for John. <laughs> I, are you kidding? I'm, I'm probably not going to edit any of this because most of it will probably be either comedy gold or conversation gold. And I, and I just want to start off saying, too, like, I know you guys are all, like, diehard Trekkies. My older brother, Dan, I had brothers who passed away, was a total diehard Trekkie. Would have absolutely loved just going out. I mean, posters, models, everything in the house. So out of, like, out of like almost a tribute to him, I was like, I feel like I had to be to this episode. However, Wrath of Khan is one of my favorite movies, so I will say that. I love all the other – I loved old tra- Star Trek – or, sorry, I loved old Star Trek – I, I didn't get in all the newer stuff just because I was, I think I was out and about playing, just doing other stuff and never got fully engrossed, engrossed in it as I should have. But Wrath of Khan, absolutely remember that at the theater with family, with them. So it brings back that kind of thing. So I just want to sit back and enjoy your, your reminiscing about this as well. So Dennis, what are you, are you, are you trying to say that we're nerds because you got out and did things and we were inside? And you had more, you had more time. <laughs> He was playing sports ball. <laughs> I was still watching Arena over and over again. Oh, I still love that one, no matter what. Like, like I like the old ones, and then it was like I like the new movies. I like the one with the the where the, the whales. I'm like I liked all those. I just didn't get into the newer series. That was really it. Well, I, I think to, at that point I might have had kids too by that time, so maybe that was it. I don't know. Well, I, as as someone who enjoys boxing, with the episode mm-hmm. Arena, you get a three hour fight scene, so that's pretty exciting you for do, you. You do yeah. <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, our movie this time around is Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan. It came out on the fourth of June, nineteen eighty-two, rated PG because they didn't have PG at the PG thirteen at this point. So otherwise, I would imagine it would be PG thirteen. For the SETI eel scene alone. Runtime of one hour, 53 minutes, directed by Nicholas Meyer, who did Time After Time, also did Star Trek VI. Writers for this one were Jack B. Sowards, who died in 2007, and Harv Bennett, who died in 2015. Sowards did a movie called The Bold Ones, actually a TV series called The Bold Ones, and I think did some episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation. Bennett did Star Trek Two through Five and Time Tracks. Producer was Robert Salen. He was the assistant director on a movie called Assassins. Music was done by James Horner, who died in 2015. He did The Rocketeer and Braveheart. 
Cinematography was done by Gain Rescher, died in 2008, did Lucky Chances and Shooter. Editor was William Paul Dornish, who did The Day After and Johnny Got His Gun. Budget was $12 million, box office $97 million. Flickmetrics gives it a 76%. Cinema score didn't have a score for this one. Starring William Shatner as Admiral James T. Kirk. He was in Star Trek and T.J. Hooker. Leonard Nimoy, who died in 2015, played Captain Spock. He was in Fringe and one of my favorite video games ever, Civilization IV. He was the narrator in Civilization IV. Forrest Kelly, who died in 1999, played Dr. McCoy. He was in Bonanza and Black Spurs. James Doohan, who died in 2005, played Mr. Scott. He was in The Bold and the Beautiful and Loaded Weapon 1. Walter Koenig played Chekhov. He was in Stretch Armstrong and the Flex Fighters and Babylon 5. George Takai played Sulu. He was in Heroes and Super Ninjas. Michelle Nichols, who died this year, 2022, played Uhura. She was in Heroes and Sharknado 5 Global Swarming. I love those titles. B.B. Besh died in 1996. She played Dr. Carol Marcus. She was in Steel Magnolias and Tremors. Merritt Buttrick, who died in 1989, played Dr. David Marcus. He was in Square Pegs and Head Office, also in an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation, with his co-star in this movie, who I am blanking on his name, Judson Scott, who played Joaquin, his right-hand man. He and Merritt Buttrick were in an episode, I believe it was an episode about drug use. I think it was like a, a morality tale about the horrors of drugs. Symbiosis, season one. Yes, yes. Was that the one, Greatest Generation uses this audio drop all the time, is that the one where Tasha Yar is talking to Wesley about drugs can make you feel good? I think it might have been that. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it was a good enough episode, but it was, as I recall, it was kind of a product of its time turn the camera kind of public service announcement, too. Well, they didn't end it with, like, Worf standing on the bridge at the end going, the more you know. Da, 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 da. Yeah, yeah. That, that would have been helpful. That would have been helpful. A warrior's drug. Monir Paneer Veneer. A Paul Winfield died in oh, 2000. <laughs> oh, no. Here we go. It is. Paul Winfield died in 2004. He played Captain Terrell. He was also in a Star Trek The Next Generation episode. One of my personal favorites, Dharma. That was a great one. He was also one of the cops in The Terminator. Kirstie Alley played Lieutenant Savick. She was in Look Who's Talking and Cheers. And Ricardo Montalban played Khan. He was in The Naked Gun and Fantasy Island. Hey, boss, the plane, the plane. I used to watch that show probably way too much, too. All right, some quick trivia for this one. So one of the Reliance crew, Commander Kyle, I don't know if you guys knew this or not, played by John Winston, was actually a recurring member of the Enterprise crew in the original series TV show. Transporter Chief Kyle. Was it? Yeah, Transporter Chief Kyle. So he shows up on the Reliant. He also shows up in Strange New Worlds. That is true. I forgot about that. Yeah. Kirstie Alley was a huge fan of Star Trek as a child, and she loved Mr. Spock, often fantasizing that she was his daughter. So I guess when she had her audition for this, she did her best Spock impersonation, and that is probably what got her the role. One of the other things I found in the trivia was many of the actors playing Khan Noonien Singh's henchmen were Chippendale dancers at the time of filming. Mm. Which is and probably, I thought it was just the costumes. Well, this is probably why they could like dive over the dive under the beams and over the bulkhead, and it's all that dancing training. I mentioned Joaquin Khan's right hand man, Judson Scott played him, and he does not show up in the credits because, and this is a lesson for you boys and girls wanting to go into Hollywood. His agent decided that well, maybe I can get a better deal for him if I opt to waive 
his appearance in the credits, and then later on I can try to negotiate a better spot for him, like higher up in the credits. And apparently that, uh, I don't know if he forgot to renegotiate that or what happened, but yeah, he's not in credits at all, and that's all because of his agent. So be careful who you choose as your agent, and uh, maybe check in on them from time to time to make sure they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. Trust but verify was what I remember yeah. always getting taught in journalism school. Trust but verify. And don't confuse yeah. me with that. Leonard Nimoy was persuaded to return as Spock when he was promised a death scene. And one of the early drafts of the movie had his death occurring at the very beginning of the movie. Like he was going to die right away. And, and we can talk about this a little bit later too. Gene Roddenberry, who had basically been dropped from this movie and I think was given a consultant credit or, or role, even though they didn't really want him touching this much at all from what I hear. He apparently was unha very unhappy with this movie, and he decided that he was going to leak a bunch of information to the fans, rile them all up, get them angry, and like unleash them on the studio. And apparently one of the things that he leaked was that Spock dies in this movie. So then what I... And, and this is kind of funny to hear this with Star Trek II in 1982, because then the follow-up sounds so much like what some of the Star Wars fans who have gotten a little crazy in the last few years have started doing. That people called, I don't remember if it was the, it might have been the producer, called the producer's house and said if people were leaving death threats, like if Spock dies, you die. And like oh, insane stuff geez. like that. Yeah. And so, but apparently Gene Roddenberry was was one of the folks that was riling people up and, and he because he, he felt like he had been jilted and so he wanted to get back at the studio and mess up their plans so apparently the whole idea of the Kobayashi Maru and pretending that everybody had died at the beginning was to kind of throw everybody off like the idea that oh well you thought Spock was going to die it's just part of this scene he's pretending to die and then you get to the end of the movie and they're like ha we killed him yeah we, we did it for real which again all with the benefit of hindsight not real but that's, that's one other thing I've taught my family as well, is that if a major character dies in something, don't ever believe that they are fully dead. They're, they're only mostly dead. Right. And they've been mostly dead all morning. <laughs> no, it did yet. And I don't know how much you, research you've done on that. I was thinking of, like, the whole script idea of how this, like, came about, like, after hearing and learning about that as well is that so much of the plot is around that, not so much, but a lot of it, the Genesis project and all that. So the whole fact that it enables Spock to come back, but they wanted to kill him off in the beginning. Was this rewritten as they were getting the negative reactions from fans? You know what I'm saying? Like, it's weird because the Genesis part of the plot to me is a big part. And it obviously looks like it's almost in place because you know he's going off to this planet and regenerate. Like, all that's the potential for him coming back. I just was always like curious, like if they were planning to kill him off right away in the beginning, what would have the story? Would Genesis still be part of the the, the plot? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Like, Rob, you were mentioning like, most of the movie involves something that involves knowing that Spock is going, unless they were going to go that route without it. But yeah, Rob, you mentioned that you had the liner notes from the soundtrack. Does it talk about that? I know it talked. You said it talked a little bit about the end. It it does talk. It it goes deep. It goes through most of the production and very cliff notes version, but it, it does talk about that. Leonard Nimoy was, he wanted to be done with Star Trek. He absolutely wanted to be done with Star Trek. So he said, I'll come back, kill me off. So they had gone through and it was during, they were getting close to the end of production and they were starting to see things. And 
Harv Bennett, Nicholas Meyer, and Leonard Nimoy all, all started seeing what, how this was coming together and couldn't believe how really good everything was starting to look. And Nicholas Meyer and Leonard Nimoy started having second thoughts. So that whole, as the, as the, the booklet, the liner notes say, the, the 71 second scene where after it leaves the bridge, after Kirk says, young, I feel young. The whole scene where it goes down through the clouds, down onto the planet and shows the torpedo had landed on the planet. That was like, that was a pickup shot that they, they said, let's give them some hope that Spock could be alive. And that was, that was added near the end of production. And they had, I mean, it says that James Horner had already finished the score for the movie came back and it's it's kind of funny he says something in an interview he said when when i first saw the footage it looked like oh no are we going into a perfume commercial or something he was like i i know what i've got to do here and so he wrote that whole theme that kind of incorporated spock's theme the main theme of the movie and romanticized it and like after they put it all together and they showed it to harv bennett and meyer Harv Bennett got up and like hugged him and he said he was, he was crying. He said, he said, I don't know how you did it, but you just, but you, I, th- I think that's the best part. Of, that's the best scene in the movie right now. So, so it, I, I do think that they had intent had intended to kill Spock, but I, I guess as the production was coming together, there were second thoughts from including Leonard Nimoy himself. And I think that's how they got him to come back for the third one. He was like, I'll come back and we can bring back Spock, but I want to direct it. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then also I had read that one of the early drafts of the script was it really didn't have, it, it still had the character of Khan and it still had the idea of the Genesis device in a way, but it was a little bit, it almost sounded a little bit more star Warsy that Khan had somehow stolen this super weapon and he was using it to, enact a a coup on some planet and that Kirk was being sent to stop him because he had had experience with him in the past. And I guess that was one of the earliest scripts. It also had, at that point, I think it was a male character. I think they had some stuff from the, what was the, there was, they were going to do like a new series of Star Trek. Was that called Starfleet Academy? Phase two two was the name of it at at that point. Anyway, I'm I'm thinking of the computer game was Starfleet (laughs) Academy, but yeah. Which used all the music from this movie, which, yeah. I still, sometimes when I hear the song, I picture some of the opening credits from that game. Yeah. But yeah, so apparently that was one of the original scripts was a little bit less of the kind of the space battle stuff, a little bit less of the, even a little bit less of the the revenge story. And then I guess as they kind of continued on with that, they, Nicholas Meyer came in and, and helped with the script kind of at the last minute. Because I guess, I guess they had started with all the pre-production stuff and they really didn't even have... They had kind of an outline, but not a finished script. And, and finally, Nicholas Meyer came in pretty late. And it sounds like he really just cleaned up all that stuff. And the interesting thing about him, and I, I won't make, I know we have some listeners and, and maybe in between ourselves, we have some strong feelings about the newer Star Wars movies. But it really, in, in researching some of the background of this movie, it really sounds like some of the stuff they've tried to do with newer Star Wars was kind of what they were doing with Star Trek 2. Nicholas Meyer came in and he's like, "Yeah, I haven't watched any Star Trek at all. I but I do really like to mash stuff up. Like he did a he did a story kind of a mashup of Jack the Ripper and H.G. Wells, you know, a whole 
time travel thing. Love uh, that movie. Yeah, and he did, was it Sherlock Holmes and Freud? I think he did a book where the two of yep. them meet. And it, so so he's got all these mashups, and then he comes to Star Trek, and he's like, yeah, I don't, you know, I, I probably know the basic premise of Star Trek, but I haven't watched an episode of Star Trek, and that's fine. Like, I'm going to do this as a character-driven piece, not a 60s sci-fi TV show or a, and I and I mean this with, with all love and affection, a 2001 Space Odyssey wannabe, you know, that the motion, motion picture kind of is. And I think that was, again, we kind of talked a little bit before about this is kind of the movie that saved Star Trek. And I think it's because he was willing to play with the characters and he was willing to maybe not take things as absolutely sacred like if he was told oh you you, no no no, you can't touch that like you can't do that to that character you can't do i think the fact that he had the freedom to do that you know it sounds like still there was interference from the studio with with a lot of different things but you know it sounds like he was somebody who came in with very little foreknowledge and just said great let me find out the basics of these characters what motivates them and and let's make this a movie about interpersonal relationships about you know how sometimes our past can come back to haunt us about growing old about all these different things which really is not what star trek uh, to a certain degree it's it, star trek never really i don't know that it really tackled too much those interpersonal relationships because i think gene roddenberry kind of wanted to shy away from <laughs> conflict interpersonal conflict which well yeah because we don't have interpersonal conflict in the future remember not, not in the future Rob, you were going to say something, I think. Yeah, uh, Bo, Bo jumped right in and got to it because, yeah, that was that was Roddenberry's edict, and that's what really messed up the, the first season and a half of the, first, of the Next Generation is there's a great documentary called uh, Chaos on the Bridge that's all about the early development of TNG and how that show ever became what it has become because of the growing pains and the fighting that that and the ideas that Gene Roddenberry was coming up with were one guy just says it they were wackadoodle and just didn't make any sense and it it, it and they they said that this is a show that's in the 80s you're tr- you're trying to get an audience you know a lot of the you can have a soap opera in space without it being soapy you can you can have you you have to have your audience connect with these characters in some way and how you do that is give them personalities give them conflict you know they they've got to they're they're not just always captain kirk making the right decision all the time because that that's kind of what some people say that they they like picard better is because picard was much more of a diplomat and he wasn't mr action and but i i still like kirk better but that's not to say that Picard's a lesser of a captain or anything like that, but yeah, that uh, Roddenberry that I can see after hearing all these stories later on, I could understand that, that Roddenberry was a bit difficult to work with f- for the studio. And th- I mean, everybody, I, I do love the motion picture, but it was not the big hit that Paramount wanted. They wanted a star Wars and it was a, it's a good movie. It's a good science fiction movie. Star Trek movie, kind of mostly there, but you had to, you can't just do another motion picture after after that if you still want to remain relevant. And I don't think Roddenberry is quite getting that memo. Yeah, yeah. And I always wondered, like, I think when I was talking to my brother one time too, I was I remember going right away. We went to the first one, saw the the first motion picture one at the theater, and I was probably I don't know. I want to say I was probably 
see what, what year was it? What year did that the first one come out? 79. 79. So I'm like eight years old. I have no idea. Like I know the TV show. I know that, but I got there and I was like probably either bored, didn't get half of it. You know, it was weird. There was the ball. I, that's all I remember was the ball girl. There was the whole guy. Like, just, it was just, I don't really remember much about that at the time. And then when Wrath of Khan came out, we were thinking, oh, is this going to, and it, did Roddenberry change his view or mind later on Wrath and the fact that had that been a flop, you might not have three, four, five, because how much is a studio going to invest into two back-to-back failures on the same time on the same show? Like I always felt like it saved it and allowed it to make a few more, even if they weren't always perfect, but it allowed them, it bought them some, because of such a smash. I hate to say it. I just don't know if he cared. He had his vision. This was, that was it. Yeah. Yeah. And he wanted to put his vision on screen and it was his story and, and God love him. He was not going to compromise. Yeah. And there was a lot of infighting because of it. I mean, you talked about chaos on the bridge and gosh, some of the stories you hear later, it's, it got nutty for a while with the lawyer whose name I'm forgetting right now. And, oh, it's kind of ugly. Yeah. Well, I think he got, when he got pushed away from the movies, he kind of got relegated to just handling the TV stuff. And he really okay. was only attached with the first, well, until he passed away, but really only like the first season or so of Next Generation. And that that's where you have a lot of that nutty stuff that you get. I mean, that's a great documentary. I I remember watching that and and it, it gave me a I was able to watch the first because I have with the exception of a of a couple of episodes here and there, I always have trouble. Whenever I go back to rewatch Next Generation, I usually start with maybe partway through season two, maybe season three. Um, but when I decided to start and rewatch from the beginning, no matter what, I'm like I start I'm starting episode one, season one, episode one, and let's just let's let's trudge through this and, and see how it goes. And, but having watched that documentary then, and then going to watch those episodes, it gave me a context to be able to, to watch these episodes and go, Oh, that's what was going on in the background that, okay. That, that helps me understand that a little bit better or why this character exited the show or why that all those kind of things. And uh, to, to quote something from this movie, it gave me a clearer picture of Gene Roddenberry. And, and I'll say this for him. He's consistent. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, it's a little, a little, a little craziness, a little craziness. You know, it's funny. I, I had a professor in college that would talk about music and he would talk about famous composers and, you know, then, then when they would conduct, if they wrote a famous symphonic work or a, symph- a symphony or something. And it was interesting because he, this, this professor of mine would always say great composers weren't necessarily the best interpreters of their own work, right? So you could get a recording of, and I'm not going to name drop and all that kind of thing, but it would be some, it would be a composer and you would hear the recording of him directing the such and such symphony on his piece of music. And then you'd hear some other famous conductor doing it. And my, my music history professor would often say, yeah, like the composers, great at writing music, great, but sometimes it takes a conductor to kind of get, the nuances of the piece and what will really ring true with the audience and so on and so forth. And it's kind of like, as we're discussing that, that's, that's kind of what I'm thinking here is that, I mean, the vision that Gene Roddenberry, well, I mean, we're all Star Trek fans in some way, shape or form here. So, I mean, we, we owe the guy, you know, a debt there that he created this world for us and everything like that. Maybe debt is too strong of a word, but our thanks or whatever fans owe a creator of a famous thing. 
But I think what's maybe kind of coming out is almost the same thing that, yeah, he created this incredible world. And I mean, this was his baby and so on and so forth. But maybe he wasn't necessarily the best at interpreting what the audience want or what direction, what direction this creation of his needed to go to. What were the nuances that would come out to really make it powerful or relevant or, or, or whatnot? And it is not my place to judge at all by any stretch of the imagination. But, you know, you referenced some of the documentaries and all that. Yeah, and anytime, anytime ego comes into it, boy, that, that can just be destructive with things. So sometimes it's not even about the thing itself. It's, it's, it's about the, the ego surrounding it. You know what I'm saying? And that, that can, we could sit here discussing that, well, why go this direction? Why go this direction? And if it comes down to, well, if the person sitting on this side of the fence has an ego that says that, that can, that can throw the whole thing in, into, uh, into chaos. So. I always wondered too, if it was like, just from his perspective of like, it became too pop, like, like some people, like a musician, they like their indie following. They like that they can keep making their music the way they want. And they almost don't, they want to be able to keep doing it. So they want the right balance of success, but they don't want to become global or, or so popular that now they're pop. And I felt like the first movie has, it speaks to a Star Trek audience. Mm-hmm. Which only speaks, you have to be a Star Trek fan, I think, fan to really enjoy that. And this one, anybody, you could show this to anyone who never even saw a Star Trek episode. And it's going to work like my kids, anybody who like before they even saw like the original series, it was like, if they saw that, like anybody, any, it was universal and anybody could see it. And that's why it became a big hit. And some people don't like that because now they're too popular, you know, like, and I wonder if he had that kind of like, you want to always be kind of a little, have the own little club of Star Trek fans versus everybody being popular. You know, well, and I was, mm-hmm. I was yeah. reading something earlier today that I thought was kind of interesting. The, the person writing the article said that whenever they try to introduce somebody to the Star Trek movies, they start with this one. Yes. They, they don't yep. start with the motion picture. They start with this movie because it's a better jumping on point. And you don't even need to. Uh, the comment that they made in their article was you don't need to have seen the original TV series episode. You don't need to have seen Space Seed to understand what's going on in this story because they're going to tell you everything you need to know. You know, mm-hmm. he's, he's going to say 15 years ago, you know, uh, Captain Admiral Kirk marooned me on this island and, and, and Chekhov's like, well, no, you, you tried to steal his ship and kill him. And it, so, I mean, you get in what, 60 seconds or less, you get the story right, of space. Right. You get everything you yeah. need to know from the original TV series, the TV yeah. episode. And it's just, there's definitely more action. I, I love the motion picture too. I rewatched that one a couple of weeks ago. The, I think the new director's cut that they put out on, was it Paramount plus might've been Rewatch that one. And yes, it is a, it is a beautiful movie and the score is beautiful. And, and I, I still love that movie. I always chuckle. And that's the ex- explanation that I gave my daughter was because she said, why aren't we watching the first one first? And I said, well, because it's it's a little bit of cinematic irony. It's called the motion picture, but there's not necessarily a lot of moving going on. So it's it's kind of ironic. We're not going to start with that one. We'll start with Star Trek 2. But yeah, it's like you said, it is a Star Trek 1, the motion picture, is a love letter to all the fans of the original series TV show. You know, you get the, and, and you get some of the like, the very slow panning shots of the some people call it like the 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 starship porn of just the the these long shots of the different parts of the ship and and all this other stuff and i mean especially as a fan like 
it's beautiful. The music is beautiful. Like everything I said, but it's just not. Sometimes I think of it as like, well, people can still love aliens, but I think of like how sometimes or alien. I think of it in a way of like how you should do a sequel to a movie in some ways. You look at Alien. Alien, awesome, awesome horror movie in its own right. Horror sci-fi movie. Follow-up sequel is the action sci-fi movie. I don't think of Aliens necessarily as being a horror movie at all. That's just not how I think of it. Same thing, Terminator, awesome horror movie. Terminator 2, awesome action movie. And I think it with some of these franchises, that seems to be when they do it right is that they, they switch up the formula a little bit. Star Trek motion picture is, it's kind of sci-fi, but it's it's very philosophical. It's it's got some of the themes of the the TV show a bit, and then they up the ante with Star Trek Two with the action piece of it, which I love. And I, and I know I've joked on on this on our podcast before that I always think of Wrath of Khan as being the greatest submarine movie ever set in space. And I was reading a different article by somebody else, and that's that's how they said Nicholas Meyer thought of it was. He's like, I'm looking at this as if it was two rival ship captains. I'm looking at this as like Horatio Hornblower in space and it's two rival ship captains mm-hmm. and Kirk is is reading his copy of, of Charles Dickens and Khan has his copy of Moby Dick that's sitting on his bookshelf and it's, it's just kind of that it is basically if you, any other kind of high seas adventure swashbuckling kind of movie that's basically what this is just set in space. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna say something and and I'm, I'm trusting that there's four other individuals on this podcast who have no qualms about setting me straight. Pat, but I we, might swim we will up. always if you need us to we will always set you straight because there you, it is you, you there it is. have been and always shall be our friend. <laughs> the the Live long and prosper, um, Pat. Thank you. Well, I, I was gonna, I was gonna throw in a quote from, you know, we're family friendly. Well, I was gonna say, well, fine, we'll double dumb ass on you. But ah, the colorful no, metaphors. but in the colorful metaphors. Now we're gonna have to edit that piece out. No, but what I was gonna say is, I'm sitting here thinking, what all you guys and I, I just, I love all the insights that you're bringing to this. But what's interesting, you know, and I think the thing that we kind of start grappling with is. What is Star Trek? You know, what is the message? What And that was earlier when we were talking about, do we like the new shows? Do we not? And, you know, one of the stumbling blocks is, well, is this really the message of Star Trek and so forth? You know, I'm thinking of Star Trek. And now we seem to live in a time where the line is really blurred between television and movies, right? So you have Star Wars shows and you have Star Wars movies. You have Star Trek shows and you have Star Trek movies. And it used to be that the television it, television shows would, I wouldn't necessarily say they're lighter, but, you know, they're more, back in the day, it was more episodic or serialized, if you will. You'd have a thing and then next week, tune in next week. And whoever it is, Captain Kirk or the Lone Ranger or who, Gilligan's Island, whatever it is, you're just kind of going through and you get these little short stories. In my mind, and obviously I was a kid when a lot of this happened, if you jump and go to a movie, well, then the movie has to bring, the the motion picture has to bring a little bit more, I don't know, uh, gravitas to it, right? Like, you got to change it up a little bit. This this is going to be more intense. You know, you're used to seeing it as a television show. Well, now we're going to get into a movie, and now the main characters are going to be in more 
life or death peril, right? It might be more intense. What We're going to show you things on screen that we couldn't show you on TV, right? The earworms or they're going to, the enterprise is going to get hit, which it's been hit with a variety of beams and blasters and whatever. Sorry, that's Star Wars. Beams and phasers and particle weapons. But it was always kind of okay. You know, the stuff that would come falling out of the ceiling and get tucked back up in there. Now you're going to see the damage. You're going to see the. So I, I just kind of think that that was kind of part and parcel for the time. The movie kind of had to be more intense because that's just the way we would make movies back then, right? If you were jumping from TV to movies. And I was also thinking about some of the original series and I started to think, well, yeah, because the original series was supposed to be about exploration and all that. But I, I don't know. I think back in, and this is where you're going to correct me if I'm wrong, but I think there were a lot of episodes in the original series that would investigate those things. I mean, I remember the one where there was one, it was, was it balance of, balance of terror where they met the Romulans for the first time. And I mean, that was another, like you say, that was an example of another, you know, submarine adjacent type story. Right. I mean, it had all the, especially cause the Romulans had the cloaking device. So, I mean, that was kind of like allegorical for submarine versus, you know, a ship type of thing. And, you know, you had that episode of what was it where they found the constellation and, and Kirk found his old buddy, then and the, the ship was destroyed by that long tube-like thing, the Doomsday Machine. The doomsday yeah. Machine. Yep. Doomsday Machine. And in that one, I mean, that guy was messed up, and he seized control of the ship, and, and Kirk was left on the thing, and then Spock had to stand. So it wasn't this utopia where everyone was working well together. And, I, you know, it's funny because I, I hear what, what we're saying is kind of how this differed, but I think in many ways I almost think that why I like the Wrath of Khan so much is it, it seemed to take Star Trek to a new level, kind of what you expect when you go to a theater. But I think it captured a lot of what I think the essence of Star Trek was. Do you, do you know what I'm saying? Like just all of those things, characters, how they're working, how you deal with the challenges of life, whether it's in the 23rd century or the modern thing and all that. I mean, right down to having McCoy and Spock argue two sides of a, of a dilemma or a, or a point, right? McCoy's coming at it with the somewhat irrational, emotional response. Spock is coming at it from the logical or dispassionate side. I, I, what's interesting, I, I found this movie did have a lot of action and it was great, but I think that it, that it works so well because it has that, but it also really has the essence the Katra, if you will, <laughs> bad joke, of what Star Trek kind of was in the in the in the original series. Pat, I'm I'm gonna remember that joke for later. <laughs> um, oh boy, here we go. So I, the to the point of, that you're making, I think that, and I'm gonna use a a line from another TV show that I know some of us really enjoy, The West Wing. I think that Star Trek, if I were to sum it up, I would just say that Star Trek Two allowed. <laughs> Bartlett to be Bartlett. I think it like really mm-hmm. allowed Star Trek to be Star Trek because I think, and I, and I don't want to pin all of this on Gene Roddenberry, but I think that the the idea that, well, we don't have interpersonal conflict between people in a utopian future, you do have, even though that was kind of his thing, you do have some of that in the TV show, but it was never really allowed to take a natural course. You know, if I'm a if I'm a story writer, you know, I'm, I'm going to let my characters, I'm not necessarily going to stop my characters from 
progressing. I'm, I'm at least going to kind of experiment with that. I'm going to see, okay, well, if I push my characters this way, I'm going to let them grow. I'm going to let them move beyond where they've always been. And I think that's one of the things that the TV show never really progressed with that. Like you could have a morality tale each week on the TV show, but it was never really, I don't know that you saw any kind of long-term growth in Kirk, Spock, McCoy, these characters. It was everybody stayed at least, at least the way I saw it, everybody stayed pretty stagnant. It was pretty much a, a plateau of character development in the old TV show. But then you get a movie like this, and it's pushing Kirk. The the one things, a couple of things I really like about this movie is that it takes the idea that, well, yeah, in the original series, Kirk is is reckless, and he is he will just fly by the seat of his pants, and it'll all work mm -hmm. out for him. And and that's just and that's awesome. Like he's our hero. He can do all of that, and it's all going to work out totally fine. And that's one of the things I really enjoy about this movie and about the way they didn't hold the characters too sacred was to say, well, hold on a second though. That, uh, that can't work for you a hundred percent of the time. Like eventually you're going to make a mistake and you have to deal with those mistakes. Like it can't, even in a utopian future, somebody's going to make mistakes and you got to deal with the consequences of that mistake on down the line. And that's how I love that this movie brings in that piece of, of him from the original series and says, okay, now let's, Let's dig into that. Let's explore that a little bit more. And, and what would it really be like if Kirk was as reckless as he was or made reckless decisions in the past and he actually had to, instead of restarting things every week, he had to actually deal with some of the consequences of what he did. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it, that, that's There's so many, so many interwoven themes throughout this entire movie. You, you mentioned a couple of the... Well, uh, getting old and feeling that you that you've that's life's life's passed you by or kirk wrestling with being promoted as admiral because he got in the motion picture he got he stole the enterprise basically from decker and took it over and this one he's overwatching kobayashi maru and judging cadets and all the other members of the original enterprise crew are kind of assisting with that her at the very beginning, but McCoy says, why wouldn't it just be easier to put an experienced crew on the ship? And Kirk makes a smart aleck comment about galloping around the cosmos as a game for the young doctor. And the horror goes, well, now what is that supposed to mean? So it's like everybody you see at the beginning, everybody is kind of wrestling with this, but Kirk is wrestling with it even more. And then you layer on top of that, an enemy from his past that he had long forgotten showing back up. And at the same time, a child that he knew he had, but didn't know was going to pop back up in his life. And then this is something that, that it, it strikes me every time I watch it. David doesn't know for almost the entire movie that Kirk's his dad. It isn't until after Spock has died because, you know, him and Carol have that whole conversation. Why, why didn't you tell him? And she, like, were we going to be together? You know, you want him in your world and I want him in mine. And, and it isn't until at the very end where he says, I'm proud, very proud to be your son. And you, there's a look on Kirk's face like, oh, she told him. And you, it's, it's such a slight little moment. It's, it's a beautiful little acting job by way of Shatner because you, I, it really hit me this time around watching it in the theater this past weekend for the 40th anniversary. 
<laughs> into theater. And it, it's, it's such, it's just layers upon layers of, and, and again, the revenge tale and never having dealt with loss. There's just so much packed into everything that would not work in Rod Mary's idea of, of, you know, cause Kirk didn't make mistakes. Kirk makes one of his bis- biggest mistakes by just being out of practice and then being on the bridge again to check something else out. And, you know, everything that was pointing to if he had been doing everything by the book, the Reliant would have never gotten a shot off on him. So, so there's, and he even makes a comment. He's like, a got caught with my britches down. I must be getting senile. It, it, there's just so much. And I'll stop talking for a little bit and let everybody else talk. Well, one of, one of the interesting things too about, and I, I was catching some of the trivia that that whole line of later where, where he's talking to Carol Marcus and he says, why didn't you tell him? Originally in the script, the line was, why didn't you tell me? So originally in the script, he, I guess Kirk was not even supposed to know he had a child. And they, I don't know, for whatever reason, they decided to change it to, and, and, and to me, that actually, I, I like that better. Like that Kirk is dealing with the knowledge and, and that you learn as a viewer, he must have always been dealing with the knowledge that he has a child out there somewhere. If he knows about it, but the child doesn't know, then he's been living with this. And this is just one other thing about him growing older and having to deal with it is the knowledge that he, based on the dominoes are starting to fall, like based on what he did with Khan in the original series, based on the fact that he had this relationship and had this child, like all of his past decisions are starting to come together at this one big moment in his life. And then spoiler alert that we've already talked about ultimately the way out of this is his best friend is going to die to resolve these issues you know kirk isn't even isn't even the hero of his own story you know it ends up being spock that sacrifices himself to to resolve all of the stuff that's going on which then gives i don't want to say gives kirk the benefit i mean i guess he he still has to deal with everything and his best friend is now dead but it does give him the opportunity to finally bring all of his thoughts together and, and at the end of the movie realize that he can move forward and that he feels young and he's no longer bothered by the idea of aging, at least not the way he was before. I, I did definitely want to get into just a couple of different moments in particular with the movie that we can kind of talk about. And I wanted to start with, oddly enough, the beginning and the Kobayashi Maru. And the Kobayashi Maru has become such an iconic part of Star Trek. Like it shows up in, in several episodes of The Next Generation, they kind of they either name drop it or they kind of imply something about the Kobayashi Maru. It has shown up in the new in the newer movies, the, the Kelvin timeline movies. It showed up in the in, in a really funny way. And I don't know if you guys watched the Prodigy cartoon at all. It uh, I'll, I'll spoil one of the episodes for you a little bit. The I guess I have to give a little bit of background. How many of you guys have seen Star Trek Prodigy, the cartoon? Yep, I have. You have. Okay. So I'm going to spoil a little bit for you. It, it is actually worth it, though. Like, there is, there is, there's a lot of Easter eggs that get dropped. I mean, if you like Lower Decks, Lower Decks is kind of the Rick and Morty version of Star Trek. This one, I would say it's a little bit like the Clone Wars of Star Trek. And they're they're really starting to develop, or the Rebels, or whatever you want to compare it to with, with Star Wars. But basically, it's a group of younger characters, I don't know if you want to call them kids, teenagers, They've escaped from this penal colony that's kind of like a mining penal colony. They have stolen a prototype Federation ship that has this prototype star drive in it that's faster than warp. And they are, are they in the, are they in the Delta Quadrant? 
Yep. Yeah, and it is the ship is kind of guided by a hologram of Admiral Janeway. And so they are they lie to the ship at first and say, Oh yeah, we're Starfleet cadets. Absolutely, we just don't have our uniforms. And so through several episodes, Hologram Janeway is trying to teach them how to be Starfleet cadets. They're like, Well, if you're Starfleet cadets, then this is how a Starfleet cadet would approach this situation. Or Starfleet cadets, these are the maxims by which we live and, and things like that. So in one of the episodes, one of the main characters, he has tried to insert himself as the captain of the ship just because he feels like he should be the captain of the ship. But in order to do that, he gets put through the ringer by having to run through the Kobayashi Maru test. And it's it's pretty funny the way they do it because he's on the, the, the hologram that they use is he's on the bridge of the next generation Enterprise. He's on the on the D and he gets to pick his bridge crew. And so he gets, he selects a Spock, Odo, I forget who else is in there, but he selects a whole bunch of different characters from different eras of Star Trek. And when he fails at it, he's like, nope, run it again. And he's like, and he just keeps running through the Kobayashi Maru and failing spectacularly every single time. But it's because he doesn't realize it's a no-win scenario. Like he thinks, all right, it's like a kid playing a video game. He's like, all right, if I just restart this level, I know I can beat it. I, I, I'll just try something different this time. And, and it's pretty funny, like the way they end up kind of working through it. And I think towards the end, like he almost beats it and then something goes wrong and he loses again. So, I mean, the Kobayashi Maru keeps getting used over and over in Star Trek. Let me ask you guys, if you were in the Kobayashi Maru, what course of action would you take? For those maybe not quite as familiar with Kobayashi Maru, there is a, there's a, what would we say, like a passenger shuttle, some ship of, of some kind that is supposed freighter. to have, yeah, like a freighter that has, I think, refugees on it, and it is in the neutral zone between the Klingon Empire and the Federation. If you go into the neutral zone, you've broken the treaty, Klingons are going to come after you. If you don't rescue these people, you're a terrible human being because you let people die, and basically, you, you can't win, is, is the idea. So, if you were a cadet running through the Kobayashi Maru, what uh, what course of action would you take? Would you try to rescue the people, or would you? Well, you got to separate the saucer section, go in guns blazing, and hope you get out alive, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, isn't that... All right. Touche. <laughs> or something to that effect, you know. Did, did they leave space dock without the tractor beam? That's what I always... Or the, or the photon torpedoes. That is always the... Because Tuesday... <laughs> It's getting installed on Tuesday, yeah. right? Yeah. 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 I mean, I guess you have to try and rescue the ship. It's, I guess they want to, I guess the whole point of the test is to see how you, not only how you react under pressure, but how quickly you make your decisions and in what order you make your decisions. So, right. It's a test of character. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I think I, I, I don't know if I reprogram the test and cheat the way Kirk did, but I might try to find some way to do that. I'm always up for a good cheat code in a video game. Points for original thinking. Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> I mean, granted, that's the easy way out of, out of the easy way out of Sim City was to type in F U N D S and just get all the money you needed. So right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but then Kirk ruined it for every other cadet who ever took the test after that because they were all looking. Like it, yeah, he's he's starting to enter the cheat code. Nope. Fail. Right. Yeah. Right. Innovators are never appreciated for their wisdom. What can I say? Hey, just because Kirk had a had a subscription to Nintendo Power magazine. <laughs> what was it? The Game Genie? Was that the thing you could attach to your yep. Nintendo and that would give Yeah, yeah. 
Herc had the game genie for the Kobayashi Maru. I don't know, Pat, what do you do? It's funny. I've, I've just kind of lost in thought thinking about the whole thing. I mean, I guess if you're going to take the test, it's how do you, how do you go under pressure, right? Like, like you said, that's kind of what the test is. And obviously it's, 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 it's a jumping off point, right? It's a jumping off point for an examination of Kirk's character. I mean, that's kind of what it gets down to is how does he learn to deal with loss and death and all that kind of stuff. And what makes it so much more fascinating is this isn't happening when he's a rookie captain or out on his first five-year mission or second five-year mission or all that kind of thing. He's dealing with it in his, well, I guess he'd be in his fifties, right? He's dealing with it much later. And, uh, you know, it's funny because you're listing all the things that are going wrong for him in this movie. All I can think of is now that scene in the uh, turbo shaft, when Dr. McCoy looks at him and goes, Dr. Marcus, when it rains, it pours. And that's kind of like, oh, wow, that line was so self-aware of what this movie was because <laughs> that was it. You as a doctor should know the importance of or not reopening old wounds or whatever. I mean, and, and so the humorous, it's just fun to see in those two banter. But I mean, that's really kind of what this movie is about, man. This guy's just getting kicked on every level. And it's it's always interesting seeing movies like this, which... I know that that was one of Gene Roddenberry's things, too. He didn't want to see the militariz- militarization of Star Trek, my understanding. he did, And I could be way off on that. And this movie kind of took it a step in the direction of more military-esque with the uniforms and, and so forth. And so that's always interesting as well. And it's, it's, you know, I've read different books by people that have commanded, you know, commanded ships or taken lead soldiers in combat or whatever, And there's always that idea that you're going to lose or you're going to lose people or that you're going to have a bad day. And, and that's something thankfully that I've never had to deal with. And I'm thankful for all those that, that do believe me. And so it's, it's interesting seeing that brought into this world of Star Trek. Right. And I almost wonder how much of it, like I said, and that's, and my thoughts, I, I don't really have a point. Like most of the times I open my mouth, I really don't have a point. But it's like, I wonder how much of it is really, was the Kobayashi Maru something that, man, how, how would we, do, how would we handle it? How would, or is it just kind of, it's there as a jumping off point to examine Kirk's lack of this personality flaw. He thinks he can always win. He thinks he can always come out on top. And so, yeah, I, I find it interesting as a test and how would I handle it? But then again, it's always easy to say, oh, well, I know I'm going to lose. So who really cares? You know, what would be interesting if I really wanted to follow down the rabbit hole, what would the follow-up instruction be? What would, what would it be like for those cadets that fail the Kobayashi Maru or do whatever on the Kobayashi Maru? What do they follow that up with? Is it some grizzled space captain that's going to come in and tell them about what it's quote unquote really like out there? Is it something like, Hey, there's really no easy answers. I'm when this is going to seem way outside, but you know, there was that famous speech that went all around the internet by Admiral William McRaven, the the top 10 things the maker, which I listen to that every day. I mean, it's amazing stuff, but one of his things in there is you will fail. It is likely you will fail often and it's not going to be pleasant and it's going to test you to your very core. And he, he goes through that and you think, okay, well, if we're training people to be able to do like, so, so 
I don't know. My thoughts are kind of scattered on this. I want to know what are, what are the next steps? Okay, we give you the Kobayashi Maru. What do they do to lead you forward? Oh, it, so yeah. Spock Spock tells them you know, go to the briefing room. So I'm sure it's he's yeah. going to dress down everybody. That he's pro- probably poor Savick is going to be right there in the hot seat, and he's going right. to tell her everything that she did wrong. And then all the other trainees are going to be like, whoa, well, my, my turn's next week. I'm not right. going to do what she did. And so that's another interesting one. Like, you make a good point. They they all have to know what this test is. But yet, every time we see it shown, they almost show it like it's a surprise that there's no way to win. It's very interesting. I, I'd love to know, as much as I'd love to see the back end of it, I'd love to see the front end of it. Are they not told that it's the Kobayashi Maru when they go in? Like, I have so many questions about the lead into that because I feel like everyone should know these things. Like, you, it's coming. I, 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 would, I, would think, I would think it's probably not the same scenario each time. It's, prob- it's probably the same setup. So You have to make a decision. It's got to be, right? There's got to be a permutation or something. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It's not always a frigate in the neutral zone, and Klingons are going to come in as soon as you come after. I, I, I would think it gets. And I hope it's up. not always the Kobayashi Maru. Like that's just a story device, because otherwise, what kind? Of, I mean, come on. Yeah. It's Kobayashi Maru day. Okay. Well, we know we're Kirk, all going to blow up. Well, we know Kirk got commendation for original thinking and being the only person to defeat it. The thing I've got pictured in my mind is that Worf has the commendation for finishing it the fastest. <laughs> yeah. I feel well, like he could he gets... open the door to get the well, in, so well, that's, that's he's true. got other problems. That's 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 true. Worf's Worf's uh, Kobayashi Maru is is a couple of French doors that he just can't get open. Yeah, what's what's I'm, I'm thinking in... like Worf would be like get in the situation. He's like, well, it is a good day to die. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa hold on, <laughs> hold yeah. on there, buddy. Well, <laughs> what was that? Dead. What was that thing with Tim Allen? Seconds. Wow, that's the fastest anybody's ever done the Kobayashi Maru. Was it that, what was that thing in Tim Allen and Galaxy Quest when he was just like, ah, oh, fire the red particles, fire the blue particles, shoot, you know, he's, yeah. yep. just shoot everything. Well, Worf's, yeah, Worf's yeah. solution is just to yell ramming speed, and then all of a sudden yeah. they're there. Yeah, yeah, and just, just, just cue the music, and here we go. Be offended about his little ship. Yeah. Little. Mm-hmm. What was the, the next generation had something... And they didn't call it Kobayashi Maru, but remember when Wesley Crusher was trying to get into the academy and he had to do that test when he was there with the guy with the the, the greatest gen guys call it the vaping pen in their face. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he was with that that friend of his and, and they were all trying to, and they each had to have a final test. And he walked in and then there was an explosion and then he was in the room and he had to figure out who he was going to save or who he wasn't. Mm-hmm. And, and that was an example kind of, of almost like the same principles. Yeah. What do you do in the no one situation? But remember the other guy had like a completely different test, mm-hmm. right? Cause he came walking out and his hands were shaking. Like, you okay? Yeah. I can't talk about it. And you know, yeah. so it's, it's, it, it, it's almost like an aware it's almost like a, what am I trying to say? Like the same kind of thing, but just not as lurid as the Kobayashi Maru where you see the Enterprise Brig crew getting all blown up and all that kind of thing. Well, we, we see Spock's Kobayashi Maru a few movies later. I mean, everybody else has all these scenarios where they got to go rescue a, a frigate of refugees and Spock ends up with one question, how do you feel? And that's the no-win right. scenario for him. Yeah. We end up, so we have Kobayashi Maru, it's kind of how we start the movie, and then one of the most iconic scenes in the entire thing the one that i've i've said it before 
I vividly remember my dad just loving this scene so much and howling with laughter every single time, which probably explains my sense of humor. We we get to SETI Alpha 5 and we experience the SETI eels and, <laughs> and the placing the little uh, baby eels in the helmets and dropping them on their heads and watching those. I think you need their... to be a little more forceful when you say SETI Alpha 5. This is SETI Alpha 5. That's there better. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Yes. The Alpha 5? Yeah, so that, and that has got to be, you ask anybody, you talk about anybody who doesn't even know Star Trek. I feel like if you mention this movie, or you mention, like, a an older Star Trek movie, or you mention, like, oh, yeah, it's the one with the eels that go into people's ears, I feel like a lot of people will be like, oh, yeah, that one. I've, I've seen that one. Or people seem to know of it. And it is, yeah, it is a sufficiently creepy and, and unnerving scene. Oh yeah, it's good old school horror-y. It's it's gushy and squishy and all of those things. It's the kind of body horror that David Cronenberg would love. Exactly. I was just gonna say Cronenberg approved. Mm-hmm. Even before he was involved in Star Trek. Right. Except they would have exited through the eyes, like more more than likely, instead of. Uh, that's fair. That's true. That is mm-hmm. true. Ugh. Oh, yeah. No, I, I vividly remember as a little kid, like my dad just, just like, he would be laughing and be like, this is so awesome. Like, I'm kind of creeped out, but dad thinks it's awesome. So let's go with it. So it's awesome. So, so, <laughs> so I've done the exact same thing when I show it to each of my children. I'm, I'm sitting there laughing. And I, that's probably why, I don't know, I, maybe I'm messing my kids up. I, I laugh through that scene. I laugh maybe? through the face melting scene in Raiders. I, it's, those are the scenes I don't know that they're supposed to be laughed at or, or enjoyed to the degree that it's like riding a roller coaster. Well, I remember my dad saying, like, that's what earwig, you remember earwigs? Yeah. yeah. Earwig, like, that's what they do. And that's why they call it. Oh, oh nice. So at the time, that made us extremely freaked out and creepy about earwigs where we were like, oh my God, it was just, you didn't want to go near an earwig. And then you're at night, if somebody said there was an earwig in the bedroom somewhere, because you now sometimes if your windows open or something mm-hmm. during whatever you do, your kids, and then. And it would just freak you out that there was an earwig somewhere at night that's going to creep in your ears and control your, like, that's what we thought. Make you susceptible to suggestion and yes, madness and death will follow. Mm-hmm. So, but slowly, but, but slowly. Absolutely love that scene. The scene that I definitely want to talk about because I think this also brings in the piece about the music and all that is the surprise attack. When we get to that and, God, just, I love that scene so much. And there is a, there's actually a great video on YouTube. I might put it in the show notes or, or tweet it out when this episode comes out. There is this great video on YouTube where the the person breaks down that scene and kind of talks through the what they're doing with the editing, with the music, with the, the camera angles, all of that, and how it just makes that such an awesome scene. You know, the whole idea of... You've got these long shots of the ships coming at each other. You've got these long shots of Kirk, long shots of Khan. And that is just just the buildup of that whole thing. And in that video, he makes a point. He, he kind of compares it with an interview that, that Alfred Hitchcock did one time where he's talking about a ticking bomb. And he's like, there's, a, you know, in, in movies, you if you had somebody, I think he says something along the lines of, if you had somebody talking about uh, something like baseball, that's a pretty boring conversation. Like nobody is really going to care too much about a, a conversation about baseball. But if you show somebody that there's a ticking bomb nearby and the characters don't know it, 
all of a sudden that conversation about baseball becomes very, very suspenseful. It totally changes the whole idea behind the scene. And he mentions in this video about this, this surprise attack scene and how these long shots are, are building up this tension because we know that Khan is on the other ship. Kirk doesn't know that Khan is on the other ship. And so for us, it's just continually building up and building up and building up. And then when you get to those scenes where it's, well, they haven't raised their shields yet. Raise ours. Their shields are going mm -hmm. up. He's like, lock phasers on target. They're locking phasers. Raise shields. Fire. And then that's just that whole thing. It's the quick, as it gets closer and closer to when they're going to fire, it just, it's like some of the scenes it cuts to are like not even a second in length. It's showing somebody flipping this switch and pressing this button and the shields going up and the, and just that, the, the editing of it itself is just, that is, even if you didn't have the music, I feel like that's enough to build the suspense in this whole scene and just like keep you on the edge of your seat. Then throw in James Horner's music and all that, and that just, it completely, it, it just makes the entire scene. I'm going to play a little bit of the music here, and then, and then not that we necessarily want to talk over the music, but I'll play a little bit, and then we can kind of talk about this scene in particular. So this is on the soundtrack. This is the piece called Surprise Attack. And he talks about, on that YouTube video, he kind of talks about how Khan's theme totally dominates this entire section of the movie. And I mean, the scene itself, what, what boggles my mind every time is I always think, man, that is such a stressful 20 minutes of the movie. And then I look at it and I'm like, that was five minutes? Are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> and, and the actual battle part of it is, what, maybe 60 seconds? If even that, it's maybe like 30 seconds once you get all the shots of the phasers firing and everything else, but just the, the buildup of everything, the, the cons music dominating the whole thing. And the other point of that too, and we've mentioned it several times already is the music is so nautical. Like it, it really makes you feel like you're either watching a submarine movie or a master and commander or, or something like that. Like you're on the, you're on the high seas. It was a good time to pop in and just make this comment because as I said earlier, I think my dad, it was one of my dad's favorite movies, and I think one of ours growing up, too, we watched it. It was in the 1950s. It was a submarine one called The Enemy Below. Okay. It had Robert Mitchum in it, and it, it, it had comparisons that whole, like, it had that whole vibe to it, and it always reminds me of that. That's a classic. What yeah. year is that, and when can we I want to say about that late movie? 1950s. All right. Well, Probably we'll have to do this. 57, 58, 59. It's, I think uh, it's, 19, it's 1957. 57? Okay. Yeah. Okay, well, in a couple of years, we'll have to do that one's 60th. That's classic, episode. man. That's a good one. Yeah. That one and Run Silent, Run Deep are both yes. credited as a lot of, oh, my gosh, what's the word I'm looking for? Inspiration for this movie. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Words, they're important. <laughs> well, and you, and you talked, we talked earlier about the episode Balance of Terror from the original mm -hmm. series, and that, the enemy below, is credited as being a, a big influence on that episode, too. And I think, yeah. Rob, I think you might have mentioned that that, was, that one itself is also kind of a, almost like a submarine battle between, between the two ships. Yeah. 
yeah, this this whole scene, I mean, this is I there are times where just just cuz I feel like it, I'll I'll go to YouTube and I'll just find this scene or I'll pull it up on wherever it's streaming and I'll just I'll just skip ahead to the surprise attack scene just partially for the music just cuz I love anything James Horner, but just to rewatch this scene and I love the it just, I mean, it, it mixes together the the suspense, the action, the humor, you know, because I love when it gets to the other part of they've now they've, the Enterprise has been disabled and Khan, his, he thinks he's won, he's overconfident and he thinks he's got Kirk and he's like, yeah, just give us a, give us a minute. We'll, we'll pull it up from the computers. Okay. Nod your head. Like I'm still giving instructions and look up the prefix code. And so they start doing all that stuff. And just, I absolutely love that scene when they're like, okay, it's it's coming through now, Khan. And he's like, here it comes. And all of a sudden, the shields start going down. And Joaquin is like, our shields are dropping. Well, raise them. Raise them. I can't. <laughs> I mean. Where's the I, override? Where's the override? Yeah, where's the, I, there are moments where, uh, Bo, we, I might have mentioned this before. I th- working in IT during the pandemic at a school, I feel like several times that whole scene ran through my head. It's like the shields are dropping. Well, raise them. I can't. I can't. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's the futility um, of of everything. I mean, the poor guy. Joaquin is much like it. Joaquin is not in the credits. He doesn't get any credit at all. And when, th- but he gets blamed for the whole thing when the shields start dropping. So, well, of course, raise. <laughs> well, raise them. No kidding. <laughs> yeah. Yes. How how would you like me to raise them, sir? Yes. Well, quickly. <laughs> <laughs> There's simply too many notes. Well, which ones would you like me to cut, Your Highness? <laughs> I'm just going to say I really like, and it's kind of a small little thing, but I really, really like the establishment of by the book in this movie. I love that because I think, yeah, we've all grown up and love the guy that, or the gal, or the person that breaks the rules, right? The one that's the rebel that sets their own course, and we love that. But I really like, because there's so much I find that it's like, hey, the book was written by the for a reason. And if someone finds out a better way to do it, a shortcut, guess what? Then it goes in the book and it becomes the book. Mm-hmm. Whatever you're talking about, there's the book, right? And so I really like the establishment of in this movie, that's why the book was written. And that's what Savick says, sir, may I point out general order, bop, 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 The admiral's well aware of the orders. Okay, well, she got put in her place for the SmackDown. And then what did Kirk say? You keep going on and quoting those things. Because, uh, Rob, like you said earlier, if he would have just been following the book, we wouldn't have had as exciting of a movie and, and all that. But, I mean, it's like that's why the book is written. It's written for these contingencies. And that's why I, I just I love that that element's in this movie because that's so true. Whatever it is, if you're working on something mechanical, pilots have the, the pre-flight book. They've got the emergency book. If something goes wrong and you're in the air, open the book up to this page and it'll tell you what to do. And I just, I really love that that's, that element is in this movie. And, and even and it's even it's even more stark when you're looking at the ships. I mean, the Reliant is pulling up right alongside the Enterprise, mm-hmm. which is exactly what a Navy ship would do if it's going to start firing its broads at the broadsides, right? Right, and, and, and you know, they don't do anything. It's and and that's that's something that uh, again comes back in the second battle, where they're talking of and and again going on the the submarine movie thing is Spock pointing out this pattern is 
goes to two-dimensional thinking. And mm-hmm. then the, 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 what does the Enterprise do? It drops way down into the nebula oh, so that they can it. come up behind them. And it's, but yeah, there was definitely, everything was, we're going to treat these like naval ships. First battle, uh, Khan's coming up like he's, like he's pulled up alongside a ship to say hi, but no. Yeah. <laughs> he says hi. And then, that's like, it's like right out of the master and commander, right before they chop down the one flag and hoist the union Jack. And suddenly you can almost imagine the doors little flopping open and bam, 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 bam. You know, I mean, it's yeah. Yeah. yeah you're, you're, yeah. I, you're exactly right. Well, Pat, you mentioned earlier, like this, this whole by the book. And if somebody, if somebody comes up with something and it works, then it becomes part of the book. What I appreciate about this. Now there's a couple of ways you could take this. When she cites a General Order 15, no flag officer shall beam onto a hazardous area without an armed escort, and Kirk's like, there's no such regulation. So either Kirk is trying to get around it, and, and he's he's pretending that there's no such regulation, or what I really enjoy about this is this becomes, it, it's added to the book because of Savick, and you would not have Season 1 TNG Riker without General Order 15. Like mm-hmm. Every single time Picard wants to go on an away mission, I, Riker, that just must be his bookmark. Must be in General Order, the page that General Order Fifteen is on, because every single you can't do that, sir. Like, no, 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 you get it. It's my job to protect you. You can't go on a away mission. I, like that is Riker. Must you know what? Actually, I bet he's got that. His I bet Riker's tramp stamp is General Order Fifteen. Mm-hmm. There's an image. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and, and and John, I just want to say I'm thinking of your line of work, your profession, and I'm thinking of your last 24 hours and how much, how easier would your day have been if people would have just followed the book? I mean, right. I mean, mm-hmm. so it's, it's, and you know, I'll let you to fill in the gaps if you want to with the other folks listening on the show, but I mean, that's something that we can relate to. Mm-hmm. That's something that, that humanity could, we can look at that and say, Oh, I can relate to that. Now, maybe I'm not going to be flying a ship around the stars. I might not get into a duel with a, 200 year old madman frozen in space. But I can relate to that idea of if people would just follow the book, we'd all be okay. If we go buy the book, student Hours testing would seem like days. Student testing will take two days. <laughs> the testing buy window the will last three weeks. Or like Vic Vega said, if they hadn't have done what I told them not to do. Mm-hmm. We wouldn't be in this situation. That's very true. Hey, can I just say something really quick about the follow-up scene to the sneak attack? I wish you would. The soundtrack, I believe it's, at least on the soundtrack I have, it's called Kirk's Explosive Reply. I love it. Yeah. Uh, It it is amazing. The whole scene is amazing, which, I mean, we can delve into and and all that. Like you said, just that whole build-up to Kirk and Spock figuring out how to pull the pull out the victory and get Khan off and all that but what I love is that it starts with Kirk saying clear the bridge and as soon as they say clear the bridge it starts with this little rhythmic motif this bump 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 and it and that goes like if you listen and it's like a three-minute song that one theme that one little motive keeps going throughout and it keeps building up and if you listen to it you can hear it just this build this this steady crescendo but if you don't process if you kind of get sucked up into the scene by the time it gets to the point that they're ready to use the prefix code and drop the shields and all that it's just 
it's it's like half the orchestra is all playing this bump 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 bump. so it's just waiting on you and you're like oh man something big is coming and then all of a sudden it just builds up and when it finally you get to the the cadence point when you when you get to the after of that phrase that's just been building through this whole song then you've got this this it's it's like the music just free spins and that's exactly when suddenly Khan loses the shields they can't find the override everything's going haywire and the enterprise slips in with its with its counterattack but i mean that whole scene just builds beautifully and the music i'm not going to i'm sure you can play clips of it you don't need me trying to off key sing it but it just starts with that real simple rhythm that goes through the whole thing and it's just it is amazing how that how the scoring just totally matches the scene like, like i this, love it like this music right here yes here it comes The other movie I almost want to compare this to is Rocky. Yeah. I feel like you get by the end of the fight, and they're both, like, half dead, but still kind of on their feet. And, I mean, it's it's kind of like, I I picture it as, like, two old boxers. I mean, yes, it is, like, naval ships, but it's also, like, two old boxers, and they're both practically about to fall down by the end of this movie. I mean, they're all just torn completely to shreds. One of them is missing a leg. You know, and just like listing off and just try, trying to land a punch whenever they possibly can. And well, it, it like I said, it's just when that clip you played was great because that that one little rhythm thing, as it builds, as it builds, it not only gets they add more instruments into it. You know, I think it starts in the strings, and then you get the brass, and then it's got the snare drum playing on it. But then they expand it; they add it intervals and octaves, and so that it just gets this bigger spread of that one rhythm underpinning the whole music. And then when it builds up and suddenly you get all that, like the sinister, like music with that kind of thing going. But then as they start slugging back and forth, you hear, you hear the theme. So you hear the enterprise theme, the, the, the good guy theme, and you hear Khan's theme and, and, you know, they wrap those in and, and that's, well, there's many different kinds of soundtracks out there, but like the soundtracks that I love are the ones that are that, that paint the picture that tell the story with the themes. And so you get all that wonderfulness of Kirk and the drama and the adventure on the high seas in space. And you get the evil con, you know, mustache twirling. He's coming back for, you get all of that wrapped up in this, in these themes. And it's, it's just amazing music, amazing music. Yeah. So we also have, as, as we kind of progress on through the movie, we've got the, you know, we've got the, I, I don't believe in the no win scenario, loving that scene of, well, if we go by the book and then they have the, the coded transmission, this is where we also get introduced to the idea that David is Kirk's son. And we have the, the Genesis cave and just all of these bits and pieces. We have the, the culmination of everything in the battle of the Mutara Nebula, which again, much like the surprise attack scene is, is 
one of the one of my favorite parts of this movie, you know, especially when we're when we're talking about the ship battles. And it it just from that point on, it's pretty much and I think that's maybe with half an hour left to go in the movie. I mean, from that point on, it's pretty much you're you're not don't try to take a bathroom break because you're gonna miss something. There are no opportunities. The Run P app has no times for you, you know, if you're if you're trying to find a bathroom break in this last half hour. But just just these these broken ships and just still just trying to slug it out with each other. I love that scene where the the they show the graphic of the two ships kind of like circling around Regula and and of course Khan is like, ah, there she is. And and not as whatever he says it like not as damaged as we were led to believe. So much the better. And you know, you know, the the game's afoot again and but these two I, I, I love that part because then you've got the the Enterprise is just racing to get into the nebula because they, they know where that's things are going to be even. Sauce or the goose, Mr. Savick. And I love that part where at first Joaquin is like, Okay, we're I'm I'm slowing things down here. We we daren't go into the nebula, sir. Shields would be useless and and uh, that whole thing. And and I love how the moment I think it's Spock says they're reducing speed. And Kirk is like, Hura, why don't you why don't you patch me through over there? So Khan, I'm uh, still alive, by the way, there, buddy. So you, you failed again, like a like a terrible marksman. Like you keep missing the target, and it and just goading him, knowing that unlike Spock, Khan has like all of the ego to bruise, and just knowing that, and and Kirk is just, let's see, I got to get this guy to chase me. I just tasks me. I, I just need to insult his intellect, and that'll get him to chase me into this nebula. Like so, all right, let's let's call him stupid. Let's see where that goes. <laughs> What's the matter, Con? Chicken? <laughs> Prepare the ship! <laughs> yes, that uh, is classic. And if Con just hadn't hit that Rolls Royce, it would have been fine. Mm-hmm. Oh, too bad. He had such a promising guitar career ahead of him. And I just love this scene. I love the whole Mutar Nebula, how you know nothing is nothing is working. They can't fight each other unless they're right on top of each other. You know, the, the targeting is not working. The shields are not working. The sensors are not working. It is just a complete, it, it's basically like trying to hit a pinata. It's like getting somebody drunk and then trying to hit a pinata with a with a, a blindfold over your eyes. It is just, we can't do it until we're right on top of each other and, and then just duking it out as much as you can and just blasting these ships to bits. Mm-hmm. And it's just so much fun to watch this entire scene. And, uh, and then, of course, you get Ricardo Montalban chewing up as much scenery as possible as he is delivering some of his last lines in the movie and, and getting ready to set off the Genesis device. And it's just, it's so much fun to watch. Yeah. What stature that guy had when like he couldn't even pretty much walk during this time. Right. Yeah. That was, I remember, I think when we went to go see the 35th anniversary showing the, the fathom events one, they had that interview with uh, William Shatner and I feel like that's, they mentioned that in that interview and said that, was it a, was it a horseback riding accident or was it, I'm, I'm forgetting what it was, but whatever it was, like yeah. his mobility was, that's basically why you didn't have any action scenes with Khan is he had to sit down or he had to lean up against a, a railing or something like that because he really couldn't, he couldn't, his mobility was almost next to nothing. Yeah. But what a commanding presence because I, man, I didn't even, I didn't process that as a kid. I didn't process that as an adult. I, yeah. you know, that was kind of, that was news to me. And then we get to, I think the, the most 
especially as a kid watching this, the most devastating scene of the whole movie. And even still, like this is one of those one of those nerdy moments where I do get a little bit of dust in my eye. You know, the the death of Darth Vader does this for me in, in Return of the Jedi. I, I get a tiny bit teary, you know, when that happens. But I think this one in particular, it's just and this is why and, and Rob, I'm glad you kind of mentioned that earlier. This scene and rewatching this scene where Spock lives out the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one. He just gets up, doesn't say anything, he knows what needs to be done goes to do it. This scene in particular is what still infuriates me to this day about Star Trek Into Darkness, is that it it's so... Even trying to recreate this scene just almost cheapens it so much. Like, I, I get so angry. I can't... I tried watching Into Darkness one more time, maybe a year ago or so, and I can... I can deal with most of the movie, but the moment they try to redo that scene of... of reversing it and have Kirk dying. I'm like, no, you have not invested. <laughs> you haven't invested the emotional capital to be able to pay this off. You know, your, your, uh, your screenwriting is, is writing checks that your body can't cash. So nope, I'm, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to say no to this one, that hard pass. But mm-hmm. I love this entire scene. Like the whole way it starts with Kirk, they've made it. He's cheated death one more time or so he thinks. And he gets over the intercom and thanks Scotty. Good work, Scotty. And then he hears Bones' voice, Jim, you better get down here, better hurry. And just he glances, if you just look at his, I know some people will kind of poke fun at William Shackner's acting abilities, but just when he looks over at that empty chair at the science station and just the look on his face of, oh, dear God, what is, what's happened? And the only mm-hmm. thing, Savick, take the con. And then he just gets up and, and walks straight to the turbo lift to go find out what's going on. And just the whole, that whole scene is just heart-wrenching. And you've had the history. That's why Into Darkness makes me upset. You've had the whole history of these characters so that it is meaningful when Spock says, you, you have been and always shall be my friend because they have that history of having been friends for decades. Whereas mm-hmm. what gets me frustrated about the other one is it's much younger versions of the characters. They haven't liked each other <laughs> for most of the time they've known each other. So to even say that line, that's where that infuriates me every time I watch it. I'm like, nope, no, no, no. Yeah. You, you didn't you didn't do what needed to be done for that to have any weight to it. Um, mm-hmm. But I love it in this movie. I love that entire scene in this movie. Yes. Yeah, and, and, and there, that's, and, and, the, mu- the music cuts out for the entire exchange between William Shatner. So you're not even manipulated right. by, by sad music until Spock gives it and, and expires. And, and then it just, it's very light, very slow. And then it goes to you go to the the funeral and then they it, james horner gives you a double punch <laughs> with right. with the music in that in, in that whole sequence mm-hmm. but yeah it, it, the william shatner has has been beaten up for his for his acting but these first two movies in particular the motion picture and definitely the wrath of khan he's and, he, and even even the scene where he, where he screams Khan, you know that the much the much memed 
thing that that they even made worse in Into Darkness. They they made that even yeah. more. Everybody in the theater when I was when I saw Into Darkness, everybody laughed, and it was not supposed to be a scene where everybody was supposed to laugh. That was supposed to be like, oh, Spock's really mad. He's gonna get con. No, no, yeah. everybody was laughing. Yeah, she just did not earn that. And and I I saw saw this movie again in the theater over the weekend. And I half expected because the theater was about a third full. I was almost the youngest person. There was, there was a father brought like five of his, his kids in there and they, they, they were all well-behaved children. I'll have to give him credit to, for that. But I even expected them to start laughing. I expected somebody to snicker when, when Kirk yells, God, mm-hmm. nothing, yeah. nothing. So you bloodsucker. <laughs> <laughs> So, so, but you feel every bit of, of the emotion of what, I mean, Kirk looks like he's losing his best friend and he's watching his best friend just die right before his eyes. And you feel every bit of that it's earned. So every single time I have cried every single time I've watched this movie, I have cried and I shed tears in the theater in front of strangers. I don't care because it's well done. And the scene also, I remember walking out of the theater in 1982 with my dad and still blubbering because Spock had died, even though I was, I was six years old at the time this came out. And I, all I had known was the regular Star Trek on TV. And I wasn't expecting any, this. I, I didn't have that worldview that, oh, some of your favorite people can die. And I remember the whole way home, which was like 10 minutes from our, from our theater to the house. It was like, Spock really dead. Spock, I didn't ever come back. It's Spock, Spock, Spock. <laughs> and, and when we get home, he's on, Leonard Nimoy's on Johnny Carson. And my dad's like, what? He's not dead. <laughs> yes. So I went, went to bed happy and not bawling, but it, but yeah, for, for, you know, and it, it still gets me because my dad like was trying to talk me off the ledge. He was like, he's not really dead. It's not real. It's character. And, and of course my dad had been reading all stuff about the making of the movie and they were, he's like, well, don't really think Spock's really dead. And and by that time there, they had already been talking about doing Star Trek three. This might've been the first movie I remember growing up where there was a, I don't want to call it an end credit sequence because that wasn't quite it, but there was a odd reveal in the credits at the end that I actually was, when I saw it, I was old enough to process it. Obviously not when it first came out because I was, well, too young. But when I first saw it, this is the first movie that I like look back on and I go, that's the first time I remember that type of reveal. Like where they were telling you something without telling you something, you know? Mm-hmm. And then you learn more about it. You know, I think we talked, I can't remember if we talked about that on the recording or pre-recording, but you just learn about how all that was done kind of last minute after they'd all had all these conversations. And and it was just, it was crazy. Like, you're like, oh, what are they trying to tell me? You know? So I wonder if, as we, as we kind of start to wrap up, and we've, we'll get our three questions here in just a second, but as we start to wrap this one up, I wonder if, to steal a phrase from this movie, I'm wondering of all of the Star Trek movies, and I think, I think you could argue that this is 
the best of all the Star Trek movies. Is it because this one is the most human? Because <laughs> like, I, I can't think of another time. Like, Rob, you're talking about leaving the theater in tears, even every single time you've watched this. I, I, I get a little misty every time I see that scene in particular. But, you know, several different scenes in this movie. I can't think of another Star Trek movie, and I've, I've enjoyed so many of them, except for five, that... And I kind of enjoyed five when I was a kid. I don't think that I've ever come out of a Star Trek movie other than this one and kind of felt the same way. Like you've been run through the emotional. I have not felt for as much as I've loved the other. I loved Star Trek six when it came out. I don't, I think that was even one of the first movies we might've seen multiple times in the theater. Um, I mean, and and I I enjoyed Star Trek eight, first contact. And I, I can't think of a time though where I was affected as much. When I talked earlier about even just the music playing gives me a little bit of goosebumps. You know, getting the scene at the end when Spock dies, get a little misty-eyed with that. I can't think of another movie that, or even TV show, that has done the same thing that this movie does. I, I certainly, uh, of, of the Star Trek films, two and six are my favorite of the original Star Trek films. And having gone back recently and watched, they didn't give Kirk nearly, nearly the death scene that he probably deserved in Generations. And I think that's why a lot of people have problems with Generations, which I don't think is bad considering Nemesis hasn't happened yet <laughs> or or Insurrection hasn't happened yet. I don't think it's is, is bad, but I... I don't think they gave a beloved character one of the best possible send-offs that you could possibly give. And ever, and and even though this movie is is almost 2 hours, it never for a second feels like 2 hours. This movie barely breathes. Right. You start out with the Kobayashi Maru, blow their stuff blows up. And then you have like a 2-minute conversation about McCoy and and Kirk about getting old. And then it's right onto the reliant and they're they're finding and then you get a little bit about the about the about the Genesis project. And then Khan's got the ship and we're racing to the conflict. I mean and the, the only the only break in the movie after that is after the the first attack is the short stint on regular one and then the Genesis cave. And that's about 10, 15 minutes, and then you're right to the end from there on. And but so you never get really get a chance. Undiscovered country, there's so there's there's pockets of of action, yeah. but there's ne- you never feel like the stakes are really heavy. There's not the emotional weight. You're not watching like we've said a couple of times. You're not you're not watching Kirk being put through the ringer in Undiscovered Country. You're not watching Spock be put through the ringer. You're not watching the crew of the Enterprise be put through the ringer. That's all here, and and it's it it just moves at such a clip that you're when you do get a chance to breathe, you're almost getting ready to hold your breath for when it picks up again. It's so, so well, I I'd say a lot like a roller coaster sort of feels yes. like as a kid, like like you said, you like even though there might be this big huge dip here, you get a little bit of a breathing room, but around that corner something else is coming, and it's just a quick moving ride that when it, like I said, it, it, it pacing is good. And, and being, I think, probably, what, 12? Yeah, it was, it was just a great, I just thought it was a fun, fun movie. 
And like you said, it had the emotional punch to it as well. And I knew the history of the regular TV show. So it was like all that played together. And, and I know you guys are talking about the Kobayashi Muru, and I didn't really touch much on that. But like, for me, it was always that don't give up, which I think sometimes I have that kind of mentality. I don't care what you tell me, there's going to be a way that I can figure this out, that there is no win situation. I always admire that about Kirk, where to me, I didn't see it as cheating. I saw it as him just never giving up. And that you're never going to just fold. And, and and to a certain degree, you get the feeling that he won at some point, like even after after the whole battle and it's all, he has that a little bit of not, not smugness or cockiness, but like, like I pulled it off again. And then when you see the chair, like you said, you realize that while I admire that, that, that spirit of, and I identify with the spirit of never giving up, there is still a cost and this cost is real and it's going to hurt you where it hurts the, the most. So you had that like, oh, he pulled it off, come to the hero again, but there was a cost this time and it was your friend. And it meant so much more to you that you almost, like you said, you had to give up, give up a ship. You, like all these other things that you could do, you, you, you thought outside the box, you, you, you didn't give up, you figured out ways, you cut your losses, and, but then at the end there's the ultimate loss of, of somebody like that. And you really feel the heartbreak. And when he's even sitting there in the room and then his son comes to him, like you just... Anybody who's lost somebody, I think, has that moment of, like, I, I think they capture it really well, that mo- moment of, like, just searching for something that none of, the, none of the other victories almost matter at this moment. Nothing matters. It's, I've lost my friend. And I, I, and I remember just being emotional as a kid about that, too. And I think everybody in the theater back then was tearing up, and it, it worked. And then I kind of still knew, I don't know if it was both, but, like, I, for some reason at the end, I knew that he, did, he was going to die. I think it's the hopeful part. Like, again comes back to the spirit of Kirk, I think, that there's a way out of this. That even though Spock died, the way out of it is the Genesis Project. Like, I was thinking that as a kid. I remember thinking, like, walking out going, yeah, he's going to be alive. He's going to come back as the Genesis Project. You know, like, that. that that's why that's in there. So, in the end, he, he will win still. In the end, Kirk will get his friend back. I don't know. And, and that's... Yeah, emotional. That's, yeah. And that's, a, that's another just another gut punch that Kurt gets at the very end that his friend has just died. Who comes to comfort him, but this son that he never had. And, and even when they embrace, it's like, it's like two really awkward, awkward. people. Yes. They, they, and it's like the, he lost what, what should mean the most to him is right here in front of him, but he lost, he lost his best friend that he's known longer than he's had any kind of a relationship with what should should be important what should matter which is his son and and while the, the hug is awkward definitely the words that his son says to him and the way he says it and the crack and the kind of the, the voice inflection that he has and it, it's so raw and real like these are two people that have trouble but the, but the son saying the only thing that i think any of us would like to somebody would like to say something to him to ease his pain and it's almost like that's the one thing that you can come the closest to was your own son who you really had nothing to do with basically saying dad it, it, it almost equates to a little bit of field of dreams at the end hey dad want to catch <laughs> and to me it's like hey we're good like and, and having that like where he's like i love that son that's just sort of the same moment well and you have you have the son that according to the the movie you have the son that kirk knew about but the son never knew about him and he's mm-hmm. gone this entire time and and what we know of Kirk, and and I think what the the traditionalist Star Trek fan up to this point, when this move before this movie was made, we know of Kirk is like the flawless hero, is like he's always going to be top of his gang, he's always going to come out on on top. But in this movie, not only does his son at the end say, "I'm proud to be your son," 
this son of his has met him at probably the worst time in his life. Mm-hmm. You know, having his this this arch villain come back to try to kill him to steal this the the life's work of you know his, you know his his son and and his mother and for his best friend to have died like for his son to say I'm I'm proud to be your son I'm sure that in the back of his mind Kirk has got to be like what the heck is there are you to be proud of? <laughs> like are you yeah. kidding me it's like what yeah. what would you have seen lately that would make you proud but yeah. I think I think that the conversation leading up to it where he reminds him how we face death is at least as important as how we face life you know I think that helps to make that a, a an especially meaningful comment when his son says that and they set that moment up with the equally believable in my opinion arguments that they have earlier and, and, and confrontations that they have about just the history and lack of history and yeah. you know, is Kirk really a deadbeat dad in a way and you know how does he not try to seek him out if he knows he exists and he kind of disappointed Kirk a little bit. So then there's a little bit of validation, but like it sets it up because there is that they weren't just, Oh, they met and everything was great. And he's saying this line, it's like, there was this. And then all of a sudden at the end, there was that final kind of forgiveness or acknowledgement or pride or connection. So, yeah, I, I appreciate in the, in the finished cut of the movie, they cut out the audio where as they start to go in for the awkward hug, Kirk says, all right, let's, we're going to boldly go. Where no one has gone before, a firm embrace. It's just, it was it was awkward. Like when they originally had that in the movie, it was just it was really weird. It was it was a weird callback. Like kind of like the in uh, First Contact. It's like you're some astronauts on some kind of a Star Trek. Yeah, you know it's a little a little too on the nose. Do we have anything else that we want to before we jump into our three questions real quick? Do we we have anything else we want to say? About Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. I'll just throw this one piece out that can actually get my brother. So for my brother's funeral, I actually used the the the, the speech at the end. The, 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 yes, and, and my brother, I photoshopped and kind of did a video effect where he gets shot off into, into the casket like that at the end. And then everybody kind of loved that. It was like, it was, yeah. And it, it was awkward for people who probably never knew him that well and who didn't know our family that well. They're playing like, what the hell are we watching at this funeral? But for everybody else, it was like spot on. And it was like, that's who it was for. Cause that's exactly like his was the most human when then it literally had his face and it did the little, I had the little, the, 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 the trans, I, I, I kind of beamed him into it and then in the sentiment. Yeah. So. That is yeah, incredible. That always has a connection to him as well. So it's, it's definitely a, a deeper movie on those levels for me as well. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I appreciate that. That is amazing. I think your brother would have appreciated that. Yeah, the, the closest I got to that with my dad's funeral was we, we had a very lovely lady sing amazing grace and we couldn't find bagpipers because that's what he actually wanted but no it that movie was that was like my biggest connection that my dad and i had my mom and i always had horror movies that was that was where we connected i connected with my dad on star trek and he like i said he went he stuck with star trek all the way up through about halfway through voyager and i think the 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 one guy turning into a chameleon episode, he was just like, I, 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 I don't know if I can do this anymore. <laughs> but, but he loved Deep Space Nine. He, he was like, Dude, you gotta, you gotta watch Deep Space Nine. I think you'd really enjoy it. But that was, that was our thing. You know, Star Trek was our thing. I, re- I, I saw Star Trek two in a theater. We went to a drive-in, saw Star Trek three, 
and he took me to see Star Trek four. And that was, that was the last one we saw in theaters together, but he had died the year before the new Star Trek came out. And I remember going into the theater and my, my was with my mom and I was with my, which is now my wife. And we sat down and I said, if I hate this movie, Star Trek is going to be ruined for me forever because I'm, I'm still pretty raw, you know, and I never got, never got to see Undiscovered Country in the theater with my dad. It just never worked out. We didn't see any of the, the next generation movies together in the theater. So that was, that was my, la- my, my first time coming back to a theater to see Star Trek. And I, I just, the entire time I had him in my mind. And when I went and saw the Wrath of Khan on Sunday, I wound up going by myself, unfortunately. But I took one of his flannel shirts with me that I had in the closet and kind of just had that sitting on my lap as we were watching it. So, yeah. 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 That was, and I, I didn't even necessarily make that connection until watching it this time, but that was something just because of our, I didn't think of it as being from Star Trek two, although I watch it now and I'm like, yeah, I bet that's, totally because of Star Trek 2. When my dad passed a few years ago, I was just trying, everybody everybody in the family was trying to, my dad was a big personality within the family. You know, it's like when one of those people that when they pass, it's it's affecting everybody. I mean, it is the, the there's a big hole there. And, right. And, and so everybody was jumping in like, well, let me do this. I want to do this. Let me handle flowers. Let me handle this. Let me handle, and, and of course, I'm the oldest son and I'm sitting there going, well, I know I'm in the middle of grieving right now, but I also want to do something too. Like I want to find something to contribute. And I, I know somebody's going to ask me to speak at the funeral and, and all of this. And the first thing that came to mind was bagpipes. And I was like, just because of our, our Scottish heritage and everything else, I didn't think about the Star Trek II connection until later on watching it. And I was like, oh man, that is totally why I had the idea for the bagpipes. I mean, he would have loved the bagpipes no matter what. And so it was, and we, and I was a, it was kind of a miracle ended up finding somebody in Southwest Missouri that could play the bagpipes and could show up on, on the particular date when we, they were free to, to be there for the funeral. So I, I did joke though, however, with my daughter, when we were watching this, because I have semi jokingly always said that when I go someday, I'd like to be shot into the sun. And so then I can always, if you just look up in the sky and you can always see where dad is, no matter what happens, it's always there until someday it burns up in a fiery explosion. But I've always said that to which my family has always responded, NASA has better things to do than shoot you into the sun. To which I then also responded, I've researched it. It only costs about $15,000. And there are places that will shoot you into space after you've passed. They will shoot your remains into space and I don't think 15,000 is unreasonable. So we're watching the end of this movie and I'm, and I'm telling my daughter, I said, look, I just want you to understand this movie collects a lot of things that I need you to keep in mind for what happens when I'm no longer here. There's bagpipes, there's a torpedo being shot towards a son and I would really like you to give a speech at my funeral and I would love for you to say, of all the souls I have encountered in my travels, dad's was the most human. And I would like you to say it just that way. Too. Like that, really, yeah. just just like that pause get a little a little verklempt a little catch it a little your throat a little bit and and uh, and and get out the word human and, and if you can do that for me and she just kind of like gave me this side eye look and she's like dad just shut up <laughs> like, all right that's 
That's as far as we're going to get today, but that's okay. Maybe she'll remember this at some point. That's why you have to put that in writing. I, I'm sure I have it somewhere. <laughs> well, it's either in writing or I've mentioned it at least a dozen times on this podcast. So if as long as the audio files are hosted somewhere, there is a record of me saying this at least a dozen times that I need to be shot into the sun. All right. Well, if that, if that doesn't work, John, at least hey, as your friend, I will throw you in a burning dumpster. Thank you. Thank you. I, I really appreciate that. <laughs> For less than 15 grand. Okay. Can you, if you do that, can we reenact some kind of like a horror movie thing? Can you at least have like some speakers behind the dumpster and like some kind of like terrible screaming sound? There you can go. Can we do that? Hey, okay. we could reenact Return of the Living Dead. No yes. death requests. Yes, thank you. <laughs> I've told my kids I want to be stuffed and put on like Great America. Like oh, taxidermy me, put me on like, the, and everybody gets a ride. You can maybe slap me around at the end a few times, and then that's pretty much it. And my favorite Peter Gabriel tunes and soundtracks and music are all playing. And what is this, Afternoon at Bernie's? Valley and Ice, yeah. It's, yeah. it's, it's one day, though. Okay. Can't be that costly for Great America. Yeah, that's probably fine. Less than the sun. That's, I mean, that's probably true. I don't know. Give it some time. Great America. Will get I don't know. Great America plus inflation equals yikes. I mean, as long as you don't want to eat while you're there. You know. All right. Strapped down the front of the ride. <laughs> yeah. On that note, I have found the override, and we're going to go into three questions. He asks each traveler five questions. Three questions. Three questions. It's impossible to answer. Impossible because you don't know the answer. Nobody could answer that question. I want to ask you a bunch of questions. I want to have them answered immediately. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. At no point in your rambling, incoherent response were you even close to anything that could be considered a rational thought. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. I award you no points, and may God have mercy on your soul. All right, first of the three questions, because we cannot go an episode without turning this into the 30-something food podcast, what is a dish that is best served cold. I'll just jump out first because somebody's going to take it. I'm going to say potato salad. Good one. Because mm. warm potato salad. Mm-mm. Yeah. Mm-mm. Put it away. It took me a while to get that one. I was going through, man. I was struggling. And then I was like, oh, potato salad. That's good. That's a good answer. Yeah. Mm. That's why I went first. <laughs> I'm going to go even more general. Salad, period. Mm. Mm. Yeah, nobody likes a warm salad. Yeah, it just doesn't work for me. Eh? Just It gets all limp. Nobody wants a limp <laughs> salad. Right. I even feel yeah. awkward saying the word limp salad. <laughs> it was your nickname in college. No. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, man. How did, did how did you know me in college? That there's such an age difference. Everyone heard about them salad. <laughs> Talk of the town. They, You're legendary. They were talking about me in the senior home. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> I can't. This is this is more of a drink and less of a dish. I can't even do like semi lukewarm lemonade. It's got to be cold. Hmm. Oh, yeah. Not a fan of if, if the lemonade is not icy cold, then I'm not a fan. 
only thing I could come up with was you know, regular breakfast cereal. Milk's got to be cold. If, if the milk gets warm, it, it just changes everything. Yeah. I, some people can drink warm milk. I can't drink warm milk. Yeah, it's, yeah. that's a dicey proposition. That's a good one, too, breakfast cereal. Thought I had a good runner-up. I mean, it was the second. My runner-up was going to be, and, and I know this might be more controversial because I know a lot of people like their these warm, but I all pies. I like cold pies. I don't like warm pies. Oh. Hmm. People do the Alamo and put it on and heat up the apple pie or the pumpkin pies warm coming out of the oven. I like it. I like it cold, cold with a lot of whipped cream on. Yeah, add me a pies. <laughs> I like a cold pumpkin pie, but if it's like a fruit pie, yeah. I usually. I usually tend to go warm for those. Yeah, that's what I said it might be. Yeah. All right. Definitely pumpkin pie cold. Warm pumpkin pie, no good. I I don't know if I have anything to add. I think you guys hit all the high points that I'm thinking of. Salads. Hold on. We haven't done this in a while. Pat just rejected your question. <laughs> well, you know, I'm going to say it. Beer. Beer is better cold. Yeah. Tell me all you want about room temperature beer. I can't. No, it's better cold. Okay. See, and the only one I can think of where it's just like, oh man, it's got to be cold. Well, no, it's then it doesn't got to be. It's it's a dish that can be served cold, and that's pizza. I I like cold pizza. Do you like? But if I had my, yeah, I do. I like cold pizza, but it's not best served cold. It's best served hot. But you can just pull it out of the fridge and right, you know, eat it. So, I that's why pizza is the perfect food because well. pizza is the perfect food. But uh, you know, unless I go ice cream, uh, you know, I mean, yeah, well, you guys, warm ice cream would be difficult. I mean, yeah, yeah warm milkshakes are no fun. Yeah. No, yeah. no, it's no. just it's just not fun. A warm milkshake is, you know, milk. <laughs> that's not bringing right. any. That's not bringing any boys to the yard. Hey, dear. And, uh, and 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 we're off. There we go. This has been the last episode of the Thirty Something Movie Podcast. Thank you all so much for being here. Thank our loyal listeners. Nobody chose a gazpacho or a vichy soir. We're not we're not going uh, soups. Well, no. by its very nature, once it is a vichy soir, isn't it automatically cold? So I don't know that well, it's yeah. best served anyway. Well, I mean, you get somebody who doesn't know what they're doing. That's true. Yeah. That's true. Jello, Jello is best served cold. Huh? Oh, that's true. I'll say that. Well, Jello I'll, is I'll best say that served part. with booze, but that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> that's a whole other conversation, but even if it has booze in it, it's still got to be cold. Indeed. Indeed. None, none of what you're saying is wrong. All right, question number two. What is your favorite earworm song? <sighs> it has to be the final countdown. Oh, Ooh, that's go. good. For me, it's under pressure. And partially because my brain will sometimes not know what it's trying to do to itself. Mm -hmm. And it might come out under pressure and it might come out ice, ice baby. You just never know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I suffer right now, by the way, (laughs) I suffer from recency bias with all these kind of questions because I don't know if I have one that's like an earworm song for like ever, but I'll tell you, after we got talking about Alice Cooper during the Wayne's World podcast, and I was kind of like left with, why am I not like 
more of a fan of this guy's music. Like I know some of his tunes, but I've like done a deep dive and just like trying to like listen around the clock to as much as I can. And uh, I forgot the name of the tune. Oh, the tune house of fire. I cannot stop listening to that song. Like I, I found I, that for some reason, I just fall onto this song and I will put it on repeat and I'll go for like half hour, 45 minutes to an hour, just listening to that song over and over. And I, I can't tell you exactly. Well, I can't tell you exactly why it's a great tune, but I don't know why that song necessarily over all the others. But uh, yeah, that's been, I, I would say for the last month or so, that's kind of been the, uh, that's been Pat's earworm song. So I think mine would be, actually, I think I have it queued up right here. And I, my daughter would probably share the, the same sentiment is sometimes we'll put this song on in the car and she will immediately just hit repeat on it. Everything. We'll just play it over and over and over again. And it, once I listen to it a couple of times, it is stuck in my head probably for several days. And, but it just, and the other thing that I love about this one, I've, I've always told my daughter, I said, you cannot play this song. I don't think you can play this song and not have a smile on your face while you're listening to it. But also the reason I love this song is because of its placement in another one of my favorite movies. The, the very, very end of American Werewolf in London <laughs> and the death scene and how you go from this, we, we talk about a very traumatic, very tear-jerking death scene, and you immediately go to... Yeah, so that's that's got to be mine because sometimes we'll throw that on in the car, we'll sing at the top of our lungs, and as soon as the thing is over, then she'll hit repeat on it, and we're starting all over again. Nice. What about you, Dennis? Did you say yours? I, I did. There's, it, you know, and it, there's so many, so I don't really have a top. But like, I will just pick the last one that happened today. It was playing on a, on 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 a store when I went into, and and Karma Chameleon. Oh, and just, good oh, one. Comma, comma, comma. And I'm like, I don't oh, know yeah. the song really. And I'm like, yeah, but you, you catch yourself saying it. It's like, that was one. Yeah, that'll stick uh, with you for a while. I was going to say Bose with uh, Under Pressure. That was definitely another one. Well, Karma Chameleon sticks with you too, especially if you try yeah. to think too hard about the lyrics. Yeah, and, and that's really pretty much all I remember is like the comic. Yeah, just, yeah. You're just doing that part. A few monkey songs too, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. Hey, even the theme, hey, hey, with the monkey. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Once you yeah. hear it, it's just stuck in your head for a while. So, yeah. Of course, the one that my daughter came up with the other day when I asked her this question was, this is the song that never ends. Oh, like, yeah. that evil, mm-hmm. evil girl. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> now, the one that you played, I don't know why, just because it's an older song, reminded me of one that used to be another one, which is the e u e u ah ting ting Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. That one can ruin an afternoon. And then okay. the last one I would so say. Quick, is- well, a, a quick question before you move on about that one. I, I have to ask you this because we had a discussion about that song a few weeks ago. Is that song offensive now? I, I don't know. I don't know. Is is it questionable in terms of the the like content of the song? That I don't know. I, we were just talking about this the other day. I'm like, I don't know the witch doctor and the ooh, ee, ooh, uh, I don't. I don't know. I just I wasn't hmm. sure. We were having a conversation and we kind of landed on I don't know. I it's a fun older song, but I don't know, something just a little tiny bit problematic about 
the song, but <laughs> like, eh, whatever. All right. Yeah. And then the two that like, I, cause you know, when you, as you, as you get older with your kids, your car rides and my daughter were all music people, but the two that also that I just remember from our conversation was that there's that blue song, blue diva diva, you know, that one that's like, Oh, a, yeah. A, a oh yeah. One. That one was one. And then the other one was the, probably the most, I think the most famous one. I mean, Mbop. Oh, yeah. Mbop by the Hanson brothers. Like yeah. that one caught on and nobody knew what that even meant. Like I remember there was even a special just on them just recently. They were talking, they're all older now and they're saying about how it just caught on. It was like Mbop and it, and it, it just, it goes on and it's like, nobody knows what that even, it was literally just a catchy sound. And this would have been much. This would have been so much easier if you said, what's the worst earworm? <laughs> right. Because yeah. it's, for me, it's always been Tom's Diner by Suzanne. Oh, Burr. yes. Yeah. Oh, I can't. It's got the beat to it. Yeah. yeah. I, oh, man. I remember, I vividly remember my dad hated that song. Anytime it would come on the radio, he'd turn it off. <laughs> Smart man, keep it out of his head. It will infect you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. The ones that if you said the worst, it would be pretty much any song from High School Musical. Because whenever I do the videography stuff and I film a play, and it's, it's that I I literally despise the play. I don't like the play. I hate it. I've seen. I filmed it like for old people, young people, little every people. I mean, there's been so many people who've made this version from middle school to profession. Doesn't matter. It's like I cannot stand the show. And whenever it's on, I'm like, oh, and one summer it was camp. They did like camp at, the, at a local park district. So they asked me to film these, the, their, all the camp performances. I'm like, oh, so there's like eight, 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 oh. I think it was like eight to 10 performances. And I'm like, okay, what's the, what's the different shows? And they're like, no, they're all the same. So it'll be real easy. It's like all the same. I'm like, well, what is it? And they're like, high school musical. I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. So I have to record eight performances of high school musical by little kids at a camp. And then not only that, I have to edit it, which means you're hearing this over and over again. You have all those songs stuck in your head, you know, remember we're all in the game, had in the game, all those. And, and I despise them so much, but I find myself in the car. I have to put something else on because if there's no music on, I just start saying that. And it oh. has to be, the space in my head has to be filled up with the next musical or the next thing. Like I might even turn on Mbop just to clear that out of my head, you know, oh. or I might go to Tom's diner just to, you know, yeah, just to get that out of your head. I, of I believe head. it. Uh, I, a long time ago, I learned a trick that works most of the time. And if you want to get an earworm out of your head, get in your car, drive down the street, put another song in that you're, that you're really familiar with. And yeah. by the time you, you come around the block to get home, just shut it off, whatever it is. That will now be stuck in the head. Okay. Most right. of the time it works. All right, I gotta try that. That's try anything because some of them are rough, man. Oh, yeah. So Dennis, as a as a middle school PE teacher now, can I just say I really, really hope that you guys don't play I Love a Rainy Night anymore? Oh, I heard about that. Yeah, yeah. Do, do you still play that? Yeah. No, they don't do the dancing anymore, although it's coming back, but I don't think they'll use that song. They so. used to at, at our I middle school. Yeah, at our it middle was, school, they, yeah, it was during those days with the the older PE department, yeah, yeah, where they would do that in the hallway and everybody heard it. Yeah, they had their <laughs> they had their dance unit, and it was when my office, when I was an instructional coach, and my <laughs> office was right there in that one hallway next to the cafeteria. I was right down the hallway too. I heard it in my digital film room every you know? day, every day for I don't even know how long. It was just it was just constant every class period. I love a rainy night. I'm like, I don't. I really don't. I'm I'm tired of it. I don't. I hope the sun comes out and burns all the rain away because I'm sick and tired of this. I was, I was, I was, you had, I'm glad that you gave, gave the little, little verse 
because I thought you were talking about another rainy night by Queensryche, and I was about ready to oh, get no. really offended. Yeah, no, this is a this is a song that deserves to be taken out back. It's visiting a nice farm upstate, basically, is where I need this song to go. Where it can chase rabbits and all those things. All right, last question, and uh, this one will probably take the next, I don't know, 45 minutes to answer. If you had two Starfleet ships battle each other, they can be any era, any any class of ship, what two would you have battle, kind of like we did in the, in the movie here, Star Trek II? The refit Enterprise Undamaged and Excelsior with mm. that A-hole Captain Styles in command against Kirk. There we go. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> I would like to see Styles get his stuff handed to him. That is for yeah. certain. As as our yeah. buddy from the Shirley podcast would say, spike the football. That's the answer. Yeah. Riding yeah. crop and all. Shove that riding there crop up. That it's it's gonna boldly go somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. After torpedoes fire. <laughs> Oh man! I can't, Captain. It's clogged. <laughs> Where's the override? <laughs> <laughs> oh dear! Is that the Star Trek term for safe word? <laughs> Where's the override? Yes. Yes, I missed. What do you think Riker's safe word is? <laughs> oh, yeah. Sorry, we have derailed. No, but Again, now, but now I'm curious. That might be question three point five. Yeah. All right, I'll, I'll think about that. So I've always loved the Defiant. I always like watching it in battle. So I'm gonna say size difference makes this an interesting battle to me. But I'm gonna say the Defiant versus a Sovereign class battle cruiser. Mm. I think it's an interesting mm. mix, and I just love. I love the lines of both of those ships for totally different reasons. Just love watching them move. They're they're sleek. They're just fantastic. That's what I got. Nice. With Worf in command of the Defiant, of course. There you go. It's a tough little ship. Ramming speed. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Little. (laughs) Patrick, how many days have you thought about this? Oh, too many, too many. <laughs> Going back a question, Dennis, I'm surprised you didn't say Go Cubs Go as your favorite <laughs> earworm song. I thought <laughs> I thought that had been your favorite earworm song. Oh, jeez. That I would prefer the eels. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what I think. It, 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 it didn't have to be earworm songs you liked. but Well played, the, Patrick. Well played. On the contrary, I... Uh, I Boy, I don't know. I'm kind of like it's 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 late at night and I'm in a mood. I'm kind of falling into like kind of you remember the super fans from Saturday Night Live? Mm-hmm. The Bears, Ditka, Ditka, you know all that. And, and it was always just like, hey, let's say like the team didn't show up and Ditka had to play. How much do they win by? You know, and it was something like that. Like I, I'm I'm kind of in a mood, so I I want to say like the Defiant versus the entire Starfleet. Mm. And I wonder how much it would win by. I mean, I'm, so, I'm sorry. I just, I can't rationally think about this question because right now my little geek brain is just going through every possible com- combination and permutation and all that kind of thing. I, uh, yeah, I, I love the, I, Bo, I love the mismatch. 
that you're talking about. Rob, I love, I love the matchup that you're talking about with the Enterprise and the Excelsior with Captain Styles. And uh, man, I don't know. This is this is a really this is a really hard one. I I, yeah, I would I, like to pick I'd like to pick the USS yeah, get in there. USS Ditka versus yeah. the USS Stargazer. Uh, mm-hmm. I, hold on the a second. Stargazer commanded by Ditka. Uh, commanded by Ditka. Captain Ditka. <laughs> I, you know what? I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to. Is he doing it again, John? I, my finger. Rejecting? No, 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 no. I'm not rejecting the question. I'm going to say, I'm going to ask for extended time. Uh, ah. you, guys, you guys finish your answers. I'm going to try and pare this down because right now I'm thinking of every combination. I'm like, I would love to see like a Romulan Warbird versus mm. the USS Enterprise T. I would like to see a Klingon Battlecruiser versus you know, like I'm, I'm kind of going through each one, and that's, that's like answering with everything. So basically, you know? basically, Pat is trying to stall. To which I respond, "That's extraordinary. <laughs> what would you like to do next?" That's right. Yeah, Th- that's. I right. think he's rejecting our reality and substituting I, his own. Go Cubs, go! <laughs> <laughs> All right, I guess just you guys finish. I'll try and come up with a concise answer. I just, I don't know. I can't. My little brain is going into reset. Having based on the based on the TV, the shows, automation systems overloaded, Captain. I didn't expect to take us into battle. You know. There you go. There you go. I, based on the TV series and kind of where I'm at watching, like rewatching everything, because I'm I'm trying to follow Greatest Generation, so I'm rewatching Next Generation, but I'm also watching through Voyager as they're going through that one too, and. As I'm rewatching Voyager, I'm like, okay, so Voyager is a smaller ship, not as powerful as the Enterprise. Quicker, I think, is is what they've referenced a few times. But I'm watching the show and I'm like, I feel like Voyager is getting out of situations a lot easier than the Enterprise would. Like I feel like in in like this one episode, Voyager is taking on three board cubes. And I'm feeling like, well, the Enterprise struggled with one. So is is Janeway a better captain? Then Picard, I, I don't know why this seems like things are coming so much easier to her. So part of me is like, well, I, maybe take one of the Enterprises and put it up against Voyager. And I'd like to see how they how they make it through that one. I would like to, the one I always as a kid thought would be kind of fun to see would be classic original series Enterprise versus the movie Enterprise. Do do the classic 1701 <laughs> from the old TV show and put it up against like the, the 1701A. And do that. Yep. Yep. Here, we'll do this. Voyager versus the Enterprise B. Mm-hmm. Voyage, I think Voyager wins. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because you've got, you know. Well, because nothing's shown up till Tuesday. Right. So right. you got other problems. Mm-hmm. You've got Captain's Day Off, captaining the Enterprise B, so. Yep. Captain Cameron. Pat, did I buy you enough time? <sighs> sort of, kind of. Okay. I, you know, and the Pat, thing is... Pat, what if you took all of the Star Trek ships and put two wheels on them? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Which Star Trek movie had the motorcycle chase? One of, one of the new ones, right? Two of the new ones. Two of the new Yeah, well, that's true. Two of the new Star ones. Trek I, you Star know, Trek Beyond. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a really interesting question. I mean... 
I guess, I guess it's easy to say for me, it's, it's easy to say like the defiant and versus whatever. I, this, this one's a really hard one because there's so many matches that I like. I'll tell you here's okay. All right. God bless it, John. These are supposed to be quick question answers and I like got nothing. Dennis, did you give your answer? I did, I'll tell you the salad. <laughs> yeah, I thought you said go Cubs go. Why don't you give your answer? Okay. Why don't you give your answer and then, then I'll defer. My answer is not going to be anywhere near as good as you guys because it's just like I like this is like above my above my expertise in this. I would say the original versus what it wasn't the fastest one like the Excelsior. And yeah. then the original yeah. I always love the original. The original yeah. with the Prime and then the Enterprise Prime and the Excelsior would be the two that I really think of that I know but you guys have like you're you got you probably know the schematics on everything yeah I'm gonna go with a runabout versus a previa yeah, yeah there it is <laughs> there it is a little shuttle I want to say the whale probe but wasn't it the whale probe it's not a Starfleet but <laughs> I love the whale probe the hell is that's that, man that, that, Dennis, that. Dennis this is a family-friendly podcast my friend I guess the, let's the, turn the recording off before you're talking about that stuff I mean, the, oh, the, we, we can always yeah. <laughs> no that's yeah I, I know how to make that work there we go I'm just gonna mute Dennis there <laughs> uh-huh. oh geez there we go at the whale probe the intergalactic starter log <laughs> John, you've lost control of the show. <laughs> There's the illusion that I ever had control. So here's here's right, what Pat, I'm gonna say. Up. Pat, I'm gonna give here's you some I'm... I'm gonna give you some Star Trek Jeopardy music and then you can okay. make your decision. Okay. Give your answer. Okay. Go. <laughs> well, here's here's what I'm gonna say. If if I was gonna see if I was gonna see something, I guess. I guess what I really like is the 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 way they portrayed the battle in Wrath of Khan. It really is easy to get sucked into that and say, "Boy, I just want more of that." And I think what what made that so good is that, like you, you, you we've said, it's like a submarine movie in space and all that. And I think what really works for me, and I'm not knocking anything because I I love it all, and I I'm not trying to be throw shade, but I think what really works for me is that that seems the most similar to when you read about like battleship combat or I was just reading this book about the second world war and some of the, the naval combat that was going on in and around like Guadalcanal and all that. And they said that, yeah, there was some maneuvering and there was it, but a lot of the times what it came down to is whichever ship could find the enemy first and fire first and hit first usually ended up winning and it ended up being kind of a slugfest. And they were, they were just talking about all the forms of that. And, that's what the Wrath of Khan strikes me like. They're kind of maneuvering around, and one guy got in and got a good shot, so then the Kirk and company respond, and they get a good shot, and then they kind of maneuver around, and whoever gets in position first gets the shot in. Okay, they get the upper hand, and they win. And I'm not saying anything neg- nothing negative at all about any of the other Star Trek, but a lot of the other Star Trek stuff that we see is it's almost like they're trying to do the Star Wars with the the starships kind of thing. And it's like, use such and such pattern delta, go. And then suddenly the ship does four barrel rolls and flips up and spins around. And and, and I get it. And it's exciting. And boy, I, and I am not going to, I am not trying to disparage that at all. But that being said, it's really cool to see what they did in, well, 
in Wrath of Khan and to some degree the search for Spock and where it was just kind of two ships kind of slugging it back and forth. And then whoever kind of gets the first shot in that gets the knocks out the other guys, whatever, but all they end up winning. And so I guess I would like to see more of that in a movie. It really doesn't matter what ships, as long as you get two ships that each has its own strengths and let's play off of that. You know what I'm saying? Like in, in this movie, the Enterprise was crippled. The Reliant wasn't. So the Enterprise had to use some strategy to get into an area where the Mutara Nebula, everything became equal. Well, Khan was really good at this, this, and this. Where was he weak? He was weak with this. So we're going to use that to our advantage. And it's not like millions of shots flying all over the place and like blaster lasers and everything flying all over the place. It was, okay, we're going to try this strategy. We're going to do this. And you just get ships maneuvering around. All of a sudden, we ended up behind him. Bam, we got him. Now we're, now we're on the, now he's on the back foot. That's what I find really fascinating about this. And while I love seeing the combat where there's lots of shots and things flying around it, that's awesome. But this seemed really cool. I get the same feeling in, in search for Spock where the two ships are coming up and it's like, man, it's just building up, building up. And then it basically amounts to three shots and the battle's over, but there was so much buildup and it was so exciting. I just kind of wish that there was a little bit more of it. So I guess if I, if I was going to say anything, I'd almost want to see, I'd almost want to see another combat sequence like that, but maybe almost do a redo of the, the, of the balance of terror episode and have it be one ship that can cloak and you can't see it obviously because that goes in line with it being cloaked and then the other ship trying to use come up with some 24th century version of sonar and depth charging to try and discover where that ship is which actually I think they had in that original episode so I, I guess I'd like to see something like that like take the enemy below and set it up in space or you know, what, like what we've seen of Wrath of Khan. So for me, it really doesn't matter what the ships are as long as they each have a different set of strengths and the captains have to play to the strengths to try and achieve victory. I, I, I don't know if that quite answered your question. Like I said, I'm really trying to put my, my thoughts in order, but I love all the different things. And anytime you get a battle sequence, yeah, it's super exciting but I, I guess I don't need to see any more like ships flying around and go to attack pattern, whatever. And it's flipping and flopping like, yeah, just show me two guys that each know their strengths and the other guy's weaknesses. And, you know, we're going back and forth and who's going to figure it out and get the upper hand. I don't know. Does that count? Does that work? Sure. I'm not reject. I'm not rejecting your question. No. What are you laughing at, Dennis? What are you listening to? When you're you're answering that question, you should just stand underneath the ceiling fan (laughs) because it's kind of like it really fits like the thoughts that are going on in your head. Oh, I can't. (laughs) You got to stand directly underneath it. It looks kind of cool. It's like the wheels are generating. Yeah, I can't, man. (laughs) (laughs) A little closer. (laughs) Like a kid with his beanie going crazy. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Like the wheels are turning up there. You're just like sorting this one out and struggling. I could, yeah, I know. I know, man. I know. So the wheels are turning. I don't know if there's any traction going on, but uh, yeah, I guess that's, I guess that's what I'd come down on. So yeah, give me something where we get a cloaked bird of prey and we get, or a 
or the defiant cloaked. And then we've got another ship that's bigger and nastier and trying to hunt it. And they're trying to either get from one objective to the other. One ship blows up the other ship. But I, I really like that, what they did in this movie where it's, it's, it's kind of submarine movie adjacent or tall ships on the high seas, like Rob, you were saying, where the, they were kind of going right along the side of each other, just slugging back and forth. I, uh, yeah, I think that's, I think that's pretty cool. All right. I'm surprised nobody like started to try to pull out the celebrity captains we've had. Like I would like to have Kelsey Grammer fighting. I pick somebody else. I, uh, that always sh- that ship always reminded me of the Reliant. You know, I, yeah. I think it's supposed to be a different class because isn't Reliant Miranda class and that one? What was the Bozeman? It was something I can't remember. But I don't know. Shape wise, it always made me think of the made me think of the Reliant. Well, oh, I want to be it was a repurposed Reliant model. We yeah. all know that. Oh yeah. <laughs> I, I don't want to do spoilers, but have you guys been keeping up on Lower Decks? Yes. Because my understanding is the captain of the Bozeman might come back in Lower Decks. It is referenced, yes. Okay. I'm just saying that's yeah. all I've heard. I haven't yeah. been able to watch the new season yet, but. Yeah, it is It is referenced in one of the early episodes okay. of this new season. Okay. All right. All right. Well, I think that's going to do it. We have we have successfully recorded a podcast that is longer than the movie itself that we came to talk about, which is always the goal every single time. But I, I wouldn't have traded a moment of our two hours and whatever, 40 minutes of discussing this because it is one of my favorite movies. And I think it sounds like from pretty much everybody else here on the recording, it is all of one of our favorite movies. And I think it's just, it's one of those, the different directions that we come at it from. Dennis, you talk about memories with your brother. And Rob, you talk about memories with your dad. And I know I have memories of of watching this with my dad and, you know, and all the different connections that we each have, you know, to this movie and and kind of what it is meant to us. But, you know, you know, a lot of people would look at it and just think, ah, it's a nerdy sci-fi movie. Yeah, it might be a nerdy sci-fi movie, but there's a lot of, go- there's a lot going on in this movie. This, this movie is to... To take the to take the quote from the movie itself, this movie may be the most human of a lot of other movies that I've seen, and I think that's probably mm-hmm. why it tends to remain one of my favorites. And James Horner is awesome, so I'll, yes. throw, I'll throw that in there once again, too. All right. Well, that's going to do it for us this time for this episode. We, If you want to hear more of our stuff, if you haven't had enough of listening to us this time around and you want to hear more, head on over to 30podcast.com where you can get all the rest of our episodes that are there. At 30podcast, most of the different social media stuff, we will be at 30podcast to find us there. Rob, is there anything that you want to, any projects you're working on, anything you want to share? No, I just wanted to, once again, thank you very much for, for inviting me aboard. And I just, I listen to podcasts all the time. I love listening to you guys banter back and forth. I love when you, when, you know, I I was rooting, I was cheering when you were tearing apart cool world. (laughs) So there's, there's nothing, there's no, no way to defend that movie. And I wouldn't even begin to try even as devil's advocate, but Again, I, I enjoy being a supporter of the show. I'm I'm glad to occasionally come on and, and talk about movies that I really love. And I'm ready. I'm ready, John, for the knockdown drag out fight. I will be in your corner when we talk about Alien Three. Oh, thank oh you. yeah, there it is. I I have I'm like pulling out 
grad school levels of research as I've been sitting down. I'm like, I need to have like all my ammunition ready to go because I know, like in in my mind, I know why it's a great movie. But I feel like I need to do do just a little bit more research and APA citations and, and all kinds of other stuff just to make sure I can, without a doubt, prove that Alien Three is a great movie. So. We will, yeah, Rob. I will definitely look forward to having you back for that one, so we can prove to the rest of the world why Alien Three is a great movie. I'll be here, and and why everyone else is wrong. And 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 I'll just throw this out there too, Rob. I mean, if I don't know if you're, it looks like you're a collector of some things back there. Like you have some good collections back there. But I know that like my brother's stuff a lot. There's a lot of stuff that as I turn more minimalist and go less and less on things, as I come across some of the stuff that's at my mom's and things like that are in boxes. I know there's a ton of Star Trek stuff, but I, I don't. If you're if you're, I could definitely reach out. And if there's anything you want there, he has a, a ton of stuff. If I find something of value, I could definitely throw it your way. Instead of putting something on eBay, I'd rather give it to a home that someone else appreciates like my brother did. So, Well, I saw Bo's eyes just kind of yeah. just skirt over to where you're like, what, 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 what's that? <laughs> and you guys, too. I mean, I'll, like I said, we'll, we'll, we'll just put whatever you guys. But that's, that's, a, that's a gracious offer. I, I, yeah. I, I would be honored to take you up yeah. on that. So thank okay. you. That would be okay. nice. Yep. Bo's eyes were darting about wondering how he could possibly get it into his house, maybe without his <laughs> wife noticing. <laughs> That's if you saw Bo's eyes moving back and forth, it might have been for that reason. Is shiftily trying to decide where I could hide things. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's yeah. I'll have right. to see what's all there because I know that it got put into boxes and things like that. My mom had it, and hopefully it's still well kept in storage. But hopefully, so I will. I'll, we'll be going through some of that stuff. We were going to go through it this summer. It didn't happen as I went out west, but uh, you know, this is sometime this year we will start going through some of that stuff as well. It's been on the list of things to do, but you know, as those things happen, sometimes they just get put there and you don't want to, it's like the room that stays the same to a certain degree. Right. All right. Well, moving ahead to the rest of September, if you are checking out, if you're one of our Patreon co-executive producers, there's several Patreon things coming out this month. We have our Patreon episode for September is the Dark Crystal. We got a lot of 1982 this month. So Dark Crystal is coming out or or probably has come out maybe at this point. So that's our main Patreon episode. We've got a couple of Patreon shorts and I I just started re, as the time of at the time of this recording, I just started rewatching these two and and I say rewatching because I have seen them before, and and man, they're weird. So one of the Patreon shorts is Cat People from 1982, and the other one is Q the Winged Serpent from 1982. So they are both fun, ridiculous, B-movie kind of fair, but it's it's a lot of fun. So those will be the two, like, 15-ish minute Patreon shorts that we've got on there. So if you are one of our Patreon co-executive producers, if you're not, then if you want to get access to those, any level of support on Patreon gets you access to that. For less than the cost of a cup of coffee every month, you can get access to those bonus episodes. And then our regular episodes for the rest of this month, we've got Forever Young and Death Becomes Her. Then October, we're following that up with our Patreon episodes. Are The main one is Last House on the Left from 1972. Then we've got our Patreon shorts, our Airplane 2 from 1982, and The Secret of Nim from 1982. So we had to, Jeff and I were going to do that one. We had to postpone it just a little bit because for some reason he's got like kids to take care of at home. I don't know. Lame. I find that if you like stick out a bowl of food, then for the most part, they take care of themselves. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. I am waiting. I am waiting, waiting, waiting to hear the reaction to The Last House on the Left. (laughs) <laughs> i am yeah. waiting <laughs> yeah that'll be that might be an interesting one 
I'm kind of curious too. We'll see how it goes. And then our other ex- other regular ones for that month, for the month of October, which is, of course, Pat's favorite month with all the horror movies. But we've got Bram Stoker's Dracula. Not a lot, actually, not a lot of these this October are really, truly horror movies. You know, there's Bram Stoker's Dracula, of course, but then Buffy the Vampire Slayer is another one. Army of Darkness. We're going a little bit more on the horror comedy this October. And then not a comedy at all, but a really awesome movie. We're going to end the month of October with Alien 3. So that's that's where we're at. But those are our upcoming episodes for the rest of the month of September, the month of October. Thank you all so, so much for being here and just having a chance to talk about a movie hitting its 40th anniversary, but one of my favorites. And it was just, it was a lot of fun to talk to you guys and get, you know, I, I know, I know what I know about this movie and I know how this movie ties in with my personal history and, and what I love about Star Trek and, and all of that. So it was fun to get to hear from different perspectives, you know, what it is where you guys come to this movie as well and kind of what it is that that really really hooks you about this movie so it's a lot of fun having you guys here so thank you all so much thank you john as always for getting us together thank you sir thanks john all right everybody be excellent to each other go watch some good movies and you know what if if you feel like you want to get shot into space at some point, like I've found some websites, I know how much it costs. I, I I can help you with that if you need more information on that. But in the meantime, go watch some good movies. Go go run the Kobayashi Maru, and I don't know, figure out your way through it, and uh, live long and prosper. All right, we'll see you all back here next time. <laughs>